Digital Gonzo, episode 149, recorded Saturday the 21st of September 2013, Fan Response. Welcome to Digital Gonzo. Tonight we're talking about fan responses, backlash, and how that has affected various industries over the years. With a changing face of communications, we, the consumer, have more and more say in what we ultimately consume, to the point where we can now send it back, like so much underdone filet mignon, and demand the chef half-bake it to make it suitable for our personal tastes. The issues we're discussing tonight is that this is the table of the world, and there is more at stake than just a single meal. With me, to, oh, sorry for the puns. That's <laughs> <laughs> so good. Just wanted to start with with a little crappy food pun. With me to discuss this immensely meaty subject are Daniel Floyd, the voice and face of Extra Credits. Hello. And Lily Scaldaferi, who I'd interpret as their hands, and with her improvisational visual flair, the often wandering sense memory. Sure, let's go with that. So, what does that make James Port now? The brain. Uh, I knew yeah. you'd say the brain. That implies that you guys don't even think or have any input. <laughs> Maybe you share the brain, but he's like the driver of the brain. Uh, I guess the brain needs the voice and hands yeah. to do anything. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Jay, oh, yeah, a vegetable. At this point, you folks are representing extra credits running around like a chicken without a head. Oh, no, it does have a mouth. <laughs> it's just got the top of its head cut off. <laughs> you can see us at panels. <laughs> Dan has been on Gonzo about 19 times now, but this is only Lily's second visit. Hello again, and welcome back. Good to be here. Thank you. You were here uh, last last week for the fairly furious Mass Effect debate. <laughs> yep. And on the show, for the first time, I am thrilled to welcome one Bob Chipman, also known as Movie Bob. Hey, how you doing? How you doing? Uh, Bob has a number of web shows, including Game Over Thinker, Escape to the Movies, and The Big Picture. What was the fourth one? Uh, Game Over Thinker. Um, well, there's uh, American Bob is on uh, YouTube sometimes, but uh, hasn't been updated in, uh, in in about a year because I've been busy. Uh, and uh, Overbytes is the spinoff of Game Over Thinker that uh, runs on ScrewAttack.com. Right, so five. I'm going to do something I don't usually do here and ask you guys at home to stop listening to this podcast. No, wait, 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 wait. Hear me out for 10 seconds first. I suggest you familiarize yourself with our guests first. If you're from Bob's pool of fans, check out Extra Credits at Penny Arcade. They have a long-running series of animated lectures to and about the video game industry. They're extremely informative, fun, and funny. They are smart, and they will make you smarter watching them. Fans of Extra Credits, which will actually be a lot of the Gonzo community already since Dan's been around since my first show, Digital Cowboys, you guys need to familiarize yourself with Movie Bob. I've played a couple of his pieces as audio in the past couple of shows, uh, one on the whole Green Lantern parallax debacle, which we'll be following up on tonight, and one on the Mass Effect 3 Civil War show, where he addressed the fan reaction and got a place on this very show as a result of. He is also very smart, very funny, sometimes quite passionately vitriolic, and you will learn all kinds of things watching his shows. I'm going to ask you guys to just suggest three episodes that people should go watch now before they come back. So uh, we'll start with extra credits. 
this one's not our usual art style, but I would recommend checking out Art is Not the Opposite of Fun. Art is Not the Opposite <laughs> of Fun? And uh, possibly if you want to see more, well, it's not our current art style either, but the uh, Call of Juarez, the Cartel episode, oh, I think is another good one. great episode. Oh, yeah. Lily, recommend one of one with the new art style. Before, so. <laughs> one of mine? Uh, yeah, one yeah, with Something you, that you worked on. Um... Bob, while you're thinking, by the way, yes. um, uh, if you you can suggest three from completely different shows, if you want. Oh, sure, certainly. Just a good cross section. In fact, if you want to start now, while oh. Lily's thinking. Oh no, Lily's got. Actually, it. I got one. Um, oh. I liked uh, one that came out uh, not that long ago, a little bit of yesteryear or yesterday. Ah, yes. Okay. About why we like older games. So it's a little bit of yesterday. Uh, Call of Juarez, uh, the cartel, and um, art is not the opposite of fun. <laughs> yes, good. Okay. And, uh, and then we on. always have our So You Want to Be a Game Designer, So You Want to Be a Producer episodes, too. Those are which helpful. are in their own playlists on our YouTube channel. Which These are hellish addictive, I might add, folks. You may end up there for longer <laughs> than you expect. Yeah. So, so a few hours. Uh, and, Bob, your three suggestions. Uh, it's hard to throw out a recommendation for Escape to the Movies because uh, that show, it, it is sort of... It's, you know, watch the ones that are about movies you're interested in, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find it on escapemagazine.com. I'm found of the way the Cloud Atlas review turned out, for example. Mm-hmm. But I really watch one, we'll see that movie first off. But, uh, in, in general, um, you know, look for ones that are, uh, movies that you'd be interested in. Um, the big picture, uh, Skin Game is probably, uh, the, the one that, uh, I was most proud of getting it out on time. Uh, it was the one about, uh, PETA, uh, the people for the ethical treatment mm-hmm. of animals, oh, right. so-called. Okay. That's a good one. Um, Sorry, excuse me. Um, for uh, Game Overthinker, uh, I would say probably the, the most widely sought after recent one has been uh, Never Grow Old, which was about uh, David Cage. And uh, was it Will Was it Will Wright and David Cage? Or was it, uh, I'd have to look it up myself, who got everyone pissed off because they started uh, running their mouths at Dice last year? Will Wright. I know, da- I know David Cage was one of them because that was... was Warren Spector, maybe? Yeah, Warren Spector. Warren Spector. Now, Will Wright's yeah. too cool. Will Wright's still cool, yeah. Warren, Warren Spector, yeah. I, I don't, I don't want to trash anyone who doesn't deserve to be trashed. I, the thing was, it was like, at first, that was going to be the big one, because Warren Spector was like the bigger name that everyone got mad at, but then everyone jumped, like, everyone else jumped on the David Cage is inherently funny thing, uh, which, uh, you know, I, I mean, Jim Sterling went pretty much mimetic, you know, with the uh, body dance and emotions. Oh my God, that was such a good episode. <laughs> he is fantastic. Jim is fantastic. <laughs> Yeah. And that's, so that, but that's, uh, yeah, that, that's one that, uh, people have, uh, most relevantly seen, uh, the game overthinker, uh, yeah, never grow old was that episode. That was three or four episodes ago now. Yeah. Okay. So everyone go and do that for a few minutes, spend a bit of time getting to know the style and focus of whatever you aren't yet familiar with, and then come back and we'll talk. And if you're new to me, Christ, what could I suggest? Just go to Gonzo Planet and look for something that you like. Because most of my review podcasts are about something that I am very passionate about. Occasionally I'll do something like Alien Resurrection, which I just drives me insane and gives me hives. But most of the time it's, it's talking about the uh, subtle intricacies of something that people would otherwise pass up as pop trash. So just go to Gonzo Planet, and if you look on the long bar on the right-hand side, you'll see a list of various different movie and game series that I've covered, which in chronological order include Star Wars, Back to the Future, Die Hard, Pixar, 007, Predator, Harry Potter, The Avengers, Aliens, Batman, Avatar, Firefly, Lord of the Rings, Mass Effect, Bioshock, and Superman. Just click on any of them for a variety of podcasts, and there is, of course, more besides. We'll see you after the music. 
tonight we're going to talk about fandom. Let's start off by establishing who we're talking about, because the easiest thing in the world is to lump everyone into a big group, slap a label on them, self-entitled loudmouths, and make a clear division of us and them. But that's an oversimplification. There are many groups, many cliques, countless individuals out there who count themselves amongst no groups. There's a great deal of psychological complexity involved in all of this, and none of it becomes more valid through pigeonholing. There is prejudice tied up in lots of this, the concept of the other of an established normality and the constantly shifting goalposts of what constitutes a break from that. There is racism to be found, homophobia, misogyny, anti-Semitism, ageism, an unwarranted assurance that this is what's acceptable and railing against it is not. There's a level of aggressive defensiveness, most often reserved for caricatures within comedy. There is a cultural and technological elitism, brand loyalty which reaches Taliban levels of blind ferocity. There's the co-opting and twisting of such smart TV shows as South Park, regurgitating points originally made in a satirical fashion, in a manner that shows many people miss that point entirely, and what they end up with is something asinine and devoid of applicability. At the heart of it all, you have people. Even the most odious and annoying, foul-mouthed, self-entitled, racist child on Xbox Live is a person. We are all alike in many aspects. We just go about our lives in ways and with worldviews that are spectacularly fucking different. Each one of these people was conceived, born, raised, found something they loved, met the internet, and found other people to discuss it with. How we go about this middle part is what we're discussing tonight. And finally, everyone walking the earth will die one day, and that will be that for them and for us. It's not our place to judge, condemn, or segregate as much fun and as much of a relief as it would be to open a door to a parallel dimension and kick through it everyone who has ever abused us in the comments section on YouTube. We have to share the planet. And if we want a better time of things, we have to lead by example. A lot of times that means rising above arguments. Others, it's about arguing in a more effective way. And we'll be discussing our perspectives, classic examples of furious fan reactions, its consequences, and what that entails for gaming and movies and the various other mediums. Before we get into the main debate, I'm just going to play you one of Bob's videos. It's on The Escapist. It's called With Great Power. And this is from his show, The Big Picture. Okay, nerds, geeks, assorted and or confederated dorkwads, we need to talk. Geek culture, here a term describing the increasingly amorphous mix of fandoms, subcultures, hobbies, etc., has always been known for strong opinions and very specific lines of demarcation. But there was always one thing that united all of it, a shared sense of overriding persecution by, or at least callous dismissal from, the so-called mainstream popular culture. In other words, for the bulk of the period wherein various nerd subcultures had a sense of themselves as a subculture, they tended to define themselves not just as what they were, but what they weren't. To be geek was also to be an iconoclast, willingly separate from and even rebellious against a larger, more powerful, and infrequently threatening mainstream culture. We were outsiders, outcasts, and self-styled rebels. Keyword in that sentence, though, were, because however marginalized and maligned we thought we were for a long run of this whole thing, we sure as hell aren't anymore. Oh, individually we may still be, to be sure, and not every aspect of any culture is going to be widely accepted, but in the big, grand scheme of things right now, geek culture and the vast spectrum of nerd ephemera has largely come to dominate what we used to call the mainstream culture. Hollywood used to scramble to get their biggest movies into international festivals like Cannes for maximum exposure. Now they want to go to the San Diego Comic-Con. HBO's current answer to The Sopranos is Game of Thrones. Gadget fetishism is now hip. The functional space between the culture of computer nerds and the digitally unified mainstream world can be measured in microns. Pacific Rim is one of the most advertised movies on ESPN. Speaking of ESPN, have you seen what sports culture has morphed into over the last decade? Looks kind of familiar to me. Video games are both cutting-edge trendy to the point of a 
obnoxiousness and also so ubiquitous that they're kind of square. Top man cave accessories went from antlers and taps to arcade stand-ups, pinball, and more high-end video tech than the Starship Enterprise. Speaking of the Enterprise, one of the biggest mass audience blockbuster movies this year was about Star Trek, while other contenders are built around Superman, Iron Man, and Wolverine. The Target Zero movie that every studio now wants to do their equivalent to is The Avengers. The original, not based on anything previous big movies this summer, include mech pilots fighting monsters and guys in powered armor invading a space station. My mother binge-watches Once Upon a Time with the kind of attention I used to put toward Babylon 5. Doctor Who is a popular TV show in the United States. Hell, that should be enough to end the point right there. Doctor who is a popular TV show in the United States. Yeah, sure, some of this stuff will always be considered niche, but that hardly precludes cultural influence or power. NASCAR is still considered a niche sport because it's only really popular in certain parts of the United States, but niche in that case is worth billions of dollars, and as such, the sport's corporate masters have a lot of weight to throw around. My point is, for all intents and purpose, we won. The popular culture, chiefly of North America, but thanks to globalism of increasingly the world, has been remade in the image of, well, my bedroom, circa 1993 or so. This, more or less, is ours now. We, as a collective entity, are no longer some unusual growth on the side of the popular culture. We are, by and large, its driving force. The will that huge swaths of the media and markets bends to is our will, and the trend does not look to be reversing anytime soon. We have the power. But, like the man said, With great power comes great responsibility. Geek culture may have started out as a sanctuary and gradually transformed into an insurgency, but whatever it is now is something else entirely. And while the iconography of the bullied nerd will always be a key part of geek culture's internal mythology, I propose that it's time for us to accept and indeed embrace that the defensive stance of a persecuted people no longer suits us, and that if we are to be the new mainstream, it is indeed incumbent upon us to take up the responsibility of that power to be a better mainstream than what came before. Because make no mistake, geek culture was never exactly perfect, and its flaws have unfortunately been magnified along with its cultural ubiquity. It was always an open secret, you see, that for all the pretense toward refuge for those who are different, geek culture was always chiefly thought of and built around really only one classical nerd archetype. White, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, first world with enough disposable income to afford their hobbies. And while it was common for idealized depictions of the culture to imagine that welcoming and understanding communities were the rule, after all, persecution must empathize with other persecution, yes, in reality, sexism, racism, and other forms of cliquish and exclusionary behavior were often the ugly underbelly of the whole scene. Now, that never should have been the case, period, but it's especially out of place now that so-called geek culture is such a dominant force in popular culture. A culture that built so much of its sense of self around resistance to persecution and oppression has no moral or logical rationale to become an oppressor itself when it attains a seat of power. And yet, too often, that's exactly what we've done. Online gaming and internet forum culture is an ocean of racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, and downright hateful rhetoric. The convention circuit acts like enduring sexual harassment is some kind of acceptable entry fee for women. When someone even hints at talking about gender roles in video games, we act like it's wounded knee and we're the Lakota. That nonsense needs to stop, now more than ever. If the self-described geek community now holds power in the mainstream, then it has a responsibility to wield that power for good. Geek culture always presumed itself to be somehow ahead of the curve, intellectually, philosophically, etc. Well, I propose that it's high time we started acting like it. We who were unwelcome ought to be the most welcoming. We who claim to know persecution should now be champions for the persecuted. To simply cut down on or even purge bigotry and intolerance from our ranks is not enough. We should be using the power of those ranks to take the fight to hatred and backward thinking. I don't know exactly what form Geek Culture 3.0 will ultimately take, but I do know that it has the opportunity to be a progressive force, a force for good, a force for change. We always said we could do better, that we were better. It's time we proved that. 
the question is, how has being a geek changed over our lifetime? I get the sense when when I was when I was a younger man <clears throat> says, says the says the thirty two year old in my salad days. <laughs> Back in the eighties, <laughs> yeah, yeah, ages ago when when mastodons walked the earth, um, I, I get the sense that a lot of people today don't quite click with the idea that when we first started talking about you know geek culture, geek community, nerd culture, it was kind of a joke. You know, not not like like that that the culture was a joke, but you know, people when we started talking about uh, you know talking about nerds, geeks, various substratas thereof, in the same terms that one might talk about, like, an actual minority community or an actual, like, like a, like a, a socially separate demographic. It was kind of, like, tongue-in-cheek. You know, we, we weren't actually trying to position being a fan of Star Trek as, you know, a socially similar stigma to being homosexual or to being uh, a, a black person in a mostly white country, that sort of thing. That they really aren't the same thing. And unfortunately, one of the uh, the the more pervasive bad things that I see in the cult. This is what I sound like when I don't have my notes in front of me. Uh, you know, of, of the mo- the more persistent not goodness of uh, of of this culture, community, whatever. Right now is there's a, a level of kind of self-righteousness and entitlement that goes, that, that seems like people are, feel the need to, you know, defend and stick up for and fight for something that really is kind of an adopted identity hmm. and some, something that is not, well, it's, it, you know, can obviously be an important part of your life is not necessarily, you can take it off. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, when we talk, when, when we talk about, you know, oh, we, you know, there's, there's this sense of I am so persecuted because I'm a gamer and everyone looks down on me and picks on me. You know what? You take off the Nintendo shirt, suddenly that's not there anymore. It's it's not the same thing as being an actual persecuted demographic. And uh, that, that kind of gets stirred up in the whole thing without that digression. What seems to have changed for me is, frankly, we're in charge now is the the main part of it not you know maybe not me specifically i'm i'm not in charge of anything but um that we are uh, the the cultural thing whereby what was niche is now mainstream mm-hmm. and uh predictably we seem to have a lot of us seem to have uh reacted to that by becoming what we used to not like which is an exclusionary culture that doesn't want to change that doesn't want to let in new things and uh it's it's got it's made a, a complete 180. The geek have inherited the earth. It's that that you know old gag that we've been telling ourselves for years is going to happen at some point. It happened several years ago actually, and now uh, we can run rings around <laughs> run rings around jocks with our technological prowess. <laughs> and well, many of us are abusing that. Well, Dan and Lily, uh, just get, can you think of any ways that which which things are drastically different for you personally than they were when you were say ten, twelve? Uh, I would say that the main difference has been that it is now like finding your own kind mm-hmm. is a pretty easy thing now. Like, uh, like where once we might have had to just be lucky enough to find people with similar interests within our school or our local social circles. Mm-hmm. Now, like it's really easy to find people who value the same thing you do, which is incredible and wonderful, and probably the closest you can get to doing that in actual person is at a convention like PAX or something. Mm. But uh, 
it has also given us a sense of strength in number, and uh, that can lead to some pretty unhealthy perspectives on our place. It is important to note, by the way, that most of the people listening, if they're from either the Extra Credits community, the Gonza community, or the uh, movie, uh, sorry, the Bob Chipman communities, I suppose it's like a, it's like a web ring now of your various fans of various shows. They've all been... Well, let me reverse this. We are all immensely lucky to have you guys. Because back when we were 10, no one would listen to us. No one wanted to know what we had to say. Now, you guys actually do listen to us and watch our, our shows and, and, and listen to our you know, podcasts. And that is the greatest thing that could have happened to my life, at least, ever. I'm, I'm blessed to have you guys. And to that end... You guys within our communities talk amongst yourselves in this smart, ordered fashion. I don't want to take uh, make assumptions about your communities, guys, but the Gonzo community are pretty accepting of all of these things which I've just listed uh, as, as prejudices, and they're pretty even-tempered when it comes to things. There, there have been some Mass Effect debates going on, but everyone's kept it civil. So... What we're looking at here is three communities have all sort of managed to find a, a decent balance of it. So you guys are pretty much exempt from all of these, you know, some fans things that we're talking about here. So, you know, pat yourselves on the back and uh, thank you very much for listening to us. A really well-behaved fan base. That sounds so nice. Do you, do you not have a really well-behaved <laughs> fan base? Are yours a bunch of rowdy pirates having verbal I, I, brawls on a nightly basis? I've I've got a very nice mix of wonderful, devoted fans and people who watch and listen primarily because they hate my guts. Oh, right. Okay, so it's like <laughs> Howard Stern then, and they basically just want to hear what you say next so that they can object to it. Uh, you know, it happens. I figured it's, uh, it's a thing that was going to happen right. anyway. Let's move on, shall we? Um, <laughs> just a brief thing, because I watched this movie again last night, and it's brilliant. Who was Annie Wilkes? <laughs> <laughs> Anyone? Well, I, I haven't know. watched the movie. I just I know of the character though. I don't want to hog yeah. it if anyone else wants to jump in. <laughs> I want to let you go for it. I would let movie like... Bob go in on yeah. this one. Yes. Okay. Uh, Annie Wilkes is the uh, the primary antagonist of a Stephen King book turned into uh, an okay Stephen King book turned into a really good Rob Reiner movie mm. called uh, Misery, uh, which uh, stars uh, Kathy Bates and James James Con. Right. Yep. Yeah, James Con, James Con. I, you know, very, very up. understated and smart performance from Khan, and very, very uh, subtle, like veering back and forth between uh, cloyingly sweet and fucking terrifying tyrant yeah. parent from uh, Kathy Bates. Yeah, yeah that, that was kind of the movie that made her as a, as a grown up actress. Mm. More made her, it was like the really big deal that uh, made her. I'm glad she, she didn't get typecast. Didn't she win an award for it too? I think she did. I have to pull it up. I know she was nominated. The premise of this movie, if you haven't seen the movie, is that James Conn is a writer of... Uh, it's supposed to be not a very good series of books. He's yeah. written like a million volumes of this, you know, schlocky period romance story. Um, and he has finally gotten to the point where he's sick of it and he has uh, killed his main character off. Mm-hmm. And he, he's going to go off and write what he considers to be, you know, better stuff. He's going to move on from, from his cash cow because he's made enough money. He happens into a car accident and is fortuitously rescued by this seemingly very nice, homebody, frumpy woman named Annie Wilkes. 
who turns out to be the world's biggest fan of his books and loves the character to death and has patterned her whole life after it. Uh, he is injured and has to stay in her house, and she finds the manuscript of uh, the new book that he's written, which is very adult, and she does not like that. Mm. And when she gets the new book... Which has uh, only just come out. Right. It's yeah. just been released to, uh, to bookstores. So she goes out to get it, and she finds out that this main character is dead. She goes insane and ties him up and brutalizes him and tortures him uh, and then orders him to write this character back to life. It, it's it's the ultimate movie about fandom. It really is. I mean, it is. It's an unapologetic screed because this is Stephen King basically writing a book that is like thousands and thousands of words of will you people leave me the fuck alone. <laughs> <laughs> he writes the, uh, a first uh, draft of how to bring her back to life in this 10th book and she goes nope not good enough because this doesn't make scientific sense uh, <laughs> that actually fucking happens and she makes him rewrite it again and it comes down to sort of like uh, the, the character was stung by a bee and she was allergic and it turned out that she was like she was uh, the daughter of long lost daughter of a countess and that what he came up with is totally asinine but she adores yeah. it yeah because it does make sense if you have an extremely trite imagination right now I'm not saying that everyone or anyone who demanded a Mass Effect three ending is like Kathy Bates in this film. But it's a really good metaphor for the particularly loud ones. Someone's going to remake Misery with like comic book fans or mm. gamers at some point. It's going to be a great movie. <laughs> but that, that sounds fantastic. Um, right, she did indeed get Best Actress uh, for the Academy Awards, also for the Chicago Film Critics Association, also for the Golden Globes, also for the Saturn Awards, all for Misery. Oh, no, she, she was nominated for the Saturn Award but didn't get it. So, yeah, that's it is a tornado of a performance. And she, she, what I got from her the most was that she was narcissistic. And that was a word that just kept recurring in my head while I was watching it. It was a brilliant parallel, not only for a, 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 an overbearing fan-creator relationship, but for an abusive mother-child relationship or wife-husband relationship. The level of control she was exerting was to prove her own existence and prove her own ability to change things and it was chilling to watch so yeah. by the end when there is something of a tete-a-tete uh, I was on the edge of my seat gripping my hands together going yes <laughs> I, I've never seen this movie but I, now I really want to see it <laughs> it's on Netflix UK I don't know about the US store it's not available on US Netflix but it is available on YouTube When I remember um, when the first backlash of the Mass Effect ending came out and uh, I was talking about it. I was at school at the time, at game design school, um, and I was talking to a friend, and his first, the first words came out of his mouth, which was like, well, yeah, gamers are spoiled and entitled. What did you expect? And my first thought after that was, well, what would they write if they thought they could do it so much better? And when you say, like, proving your own worth, that's kind of just the first thought that, you know, springs to mind is, well, what would you do? How would you make it better? And a lot of people don't know how. Plenty of them actually did write out um, various sort of breakdowns. Oh, yeah. No, I know that. And, and what would actually make sense given... A lot of people said that what was presented did not make sense. Now, that's going to come up in... Uh, you know what? It's a tangent. 
Um, the whole, yeah. this is just, I've got as a bullet point down here, obsessing over practicalities and in, in parentheses, things being scientifically accurate. And that obviously relates to this specifically. Lily, what were your thoughts on this? Yeah. This, so this drives me nuts every time I hear stuff like this. Um, the indoctrination theory that people were talking about with Mass Effect, while fascinating in its own right, kind of just drove me up a wall because it it's just it's getting so nitpicky that it's forgetting about what the theme of the game is. Mm. And um, you know, like we don't we don't look at other pieces of medium and art the same way. Like when we look at a Picasso painting, we don't complain about the fact that the nose is on the side of the guy's head because it wouldn't make sense because then he wouldn't be able to breathe and blah, blah, blah. Like, no. We <laughs> Some people at, do. <laughs> we have, but, like, there's a bigger picture to be looking at, is my point. You know, it, and it's, it almost devalues what the artistic statement is. And this is also why I can't watch a lot of anime because mm-hmm. it spends so much time making sure everything about the world is so scientifically accurate that it spends no time developing characters and giving you a, a real story to bite into. Which animes uh, specifically uh, spring to mind when you think about that? Because uh, Oh, man. Um, I don't know any of their names because <laughs> I can't... See, on Gonzo, we make you back up the statements. I know. In and, case you, you know, piss people that, off. I know. Um, Anime gonna... loves its world building. Yeah. True. There's, there's a few... Um, Holy shit! I know that I know these things too. Well, it's it. What I, I I agree with the general principle. What I find with a lot of anime and manga is that they are the world. The world building seems to come first, and then the and then the story often uh, is is sort of on top of that. Where it's not yeah. necessarily interested in science, but it is overly interested in internal logic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, of of making sure that uh, you know, like. Uh, you know, whatever happens in the story, well, that would be interesting. Okay, but 97 episodes back, you know, this <laughs> happened. And, uh, you know, if we don't make sure that it lines up with this, they will catch it. That's not a oh, million you know, miles off Tolkien, though. If you if, uh, He spent decades world-building. And the, the, if you go through the book, it's densely packed with various references to things that have happened. Um, but it took the movies to actually really bring these characters to further into... Uh, uh, what could be interpreted as textured, modern, cinematic creations. An extensive world building is, I mean, hardly a bad thing. I mean, it's, oh, no, of course not. And, and nitpicking oh, no. through it. And, Mass and, Effect, and digging, for example, is absolutely yeah. packed with it. Oh, for sure, for sure. And nitpicking and digging into a story's internal logic and, and exploring the fictional world that way is a ton of fun. But as a general rule, I feel like those nitpicks and the internal logic are rarely the things that are going to make or break a story's effectiveness. Like... That character and fundamental storytelling are f- like far outweigh logic or scientific accuracy. Like uh, even in a relatively science-based universe, like I-, I guess Star Trek, for example, like whether or not the Enterprise gets parked underwater is not going. What's going to make or break the film's effectiveness? Like, like Lord knows, Back to the Future movies have some weird internal logic inconsistencies, but yeah, who, yeah. like who cares? Those those stories and those characters are so entertaining, and like I. I I don't don't expect a bunch of physicians staring at the camera and saying, you know, best not think too deeply about this one, folks. Yeah, I'm sure I don't expect a bunch of balloons could really make an old man's house float to South America, but (laughs) who who cares? (laughs) It's, I mean, it's really fun to nitpick, and sometimes those inaccuracies can be glaring Mm. as a distraction or a sticking point. But I mean, they are. 
I very rarely find them to be the most important thing. See, I love to think too deeply into things. I love to come up with things that don't really make much sense, but I tend to forgive material that is brilliant at its core because my emotional response is the key. Yeah. It's not my intellectual response. And I agree. I absolutely agree with that. Like, I love talking about um, how, you know, science and, and theories work especially in Mass Effect, one of my favorite conversations to have is how would time actually be consistent in the Mass Effect universe yeah. if time is, you know, relevant to a planet. But anyway. Um, and there you I have, broke the entire series with yeah, that one exactly. question. So like, that's, that's, that's what I mean. You know, it's so easy to break just an entire universe like that. But the thing is that that's not what I'm thinking about the entire time I'm playing it. It is fun to have those conversations. I have nothing against that. But Every clock in I, the universe is set to Earth time. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> Let's not give the, the, the nerd culture nitpick um, industry too much credit here, if only because it I, I find it helpful to keep in mind that we generally only hear the really, really hardcore nitpick stuff come out as a way to justify the hatred of something that they already hate. Because mm. if it's something that they like, it tends to get, like, glossed right over. Yeah. I mean, like, St- Star Trek has always had, you know, a very loose grasp of even its own, you know, in-universe science. Yeah. You know, the the Enterprise, you know, not being able to go underwater thing or whatever, it's, it's a legit nitpick if you're big on the science of those things. But that comes up because they didn't like Star Trek Into Darkness. That's a very good reason for it. Star Trek Into Darkness was terrible. But, uh, you know, that's why. Um, when, uh, <laughs> and that's your prerogative. And, that, and that's your prerogative. Carry on, but, carry on. But, but, and then uh, some Bob left the conversation. No. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, 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 it's just fine. It's just fine. Um, it's similarly, you know, back on video games when, uh, you know, notoriously, uh, gaming culture has never ever wanted to talk about sexism, portrayal of women, whatever. Mm. Oh, wait, then, hang on. We'll be getting to that in just a second, but yeah. Oh, uh, oh yeah. But like Metroid other M came out and then suddenly everyone was uh, Gloria Steinem. now now here's an attempt to attack a throwbacky Wii game you know so man the man the horses ladies you know suddenly every bro in gaming was uh you know the um you know a a gender studies expert and could talk all about patriarchy and could talk all about uh, what a terrible influence adam was as a character and this that and vice versa because all right because now we have a chance to bring down nintendo for ruining everything with motion controls so by all means let's use that that is it's a good thing though that ultimately people are now able to access that level of information and sharpen up on things like that rather than just going this is gay but it's uh, using it's it's misusing that uh, resource. You know, it's guns a secondary are... thing. It's a secondary thing gone to like. I I, I love the way that uh, film crit Hulk describes them as the tangible details. Like you, there's something you don't like, and if you can't find like with if you don't know storytelling fundamentals, perhaps you can't like isolate why in a dramatic sense something doesn't work. You can at the very least find some soft scientific things that don't make sense. And yeah. latch, whatever you can figure out that seems wrong with the movie, you can latch onto. Or game, I suppose. You know, a kitchen knife is a very useful tool, but I'm not going to leave one out where an eight-year-old can find it. And a little knowledge in the wrong hands is a dangerous thing. Nice point. 
Yeah. And that comes down to the, the misuse of things that they've read. Like I said, the whole the South Park thing. South Park's been going on for so long and has reached so many ears and so many people with its smart, dryly delivered message that a lot of the time is open to interpretation. They don't tend to say what they mean. You have to figure it out for yourself. And a lot of people don't. They take a lot at face value. Yeah. They also tend to conclude, well, Matt and Trey appear to think this, and they're smart, so if I think this, then I'm smart. Sometimes they mean the opposite of what they say. The the South Park guys are an unusual case, because it, I, I believe them when they say that the show is nothing but them agreeing with one another. You know, that it's, it's stuff they find funny, it's stuff they agree with. Mm. Uh, I, I do think that uh, they have really... When you want to talk about like a, a privileged viewpoint, you know the 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 overriding philosophical run of uh, of where South Park tends to come from is this sort of idea of you know stop being upset about things like like the, if South Park has a credo, it's calm down, don't be so upset about things. Things are not as bad as they seem. Find a middle ground. Yeah. Right. Unfortunately, a lot of the times it's it, you, it feels to me, especially now as I as I get older, like in in high school, South Park was you know the smartest thing I'd ever seen. Mm. I was in high school, you know, I was an yep. idiot. A lot of times, like the overriding credo of you know things are okay, you know, don't get so upset. Like the the voting thing, you know, where, where you know the whole thing of you know vote or die, you know, is uh, you know they made fun of the idea of being passionate about politics. The the point of that episode was never you know, vote for this guy, don't vote for this guy. The point of that episode was, you know, it's that tired Ron Paul libertarian shtick of, you know, well, you know, both parties are totally the same, you know, and they won't actually mean anything different. And what I want to say to people who say that, who tend to like the South Park guys be, you know, middle-class white guys, you know, with uh, pretty good incomes going, yes, it's not too much different for you. You're perfectly okay. For so many other people around the world, especially, that did matter. You know, uh, you know, there's not that much difference between Kerry or Bush. You know, Kerry probably would have ended that war two years earlier. There's a whole bunch of people dead who I think would say there actually is a difference. But I'm going to get off on a huge rant if I keep going there, so please cut me off right now. No, no, I love your rants. I love it when you get fired up about shit. I love that. <laughs> I don't want, I don't want to do- dominate the conversation, but yeah, that's... It's what this show originally started out as. I, anything which actually has a point to it, I nurture like a baby dinosaur. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay, so that's the problem with South Park. That is the problem with South Park. <laughs> let us move on uh, to the next section because the, this could actually become quite extensive. What are some of the most extreme instances of bitter fan outrage that you can think of that ultimately had no effect on the end product? I have ten here. See how many of you you can think of. By all means, just go jump back and forth in time. It doesn't have to be in any particular well, order. There's one that I think of that um, we're kind of seeing reflected again, and mm. both have to do with Batman and casting. Um, that might be the Heath first Ledger, one. Oh, yeah, yeah no, when Heath going. Ledger was announced as the Joker, people freaked out, and Seriously? he turned out to be one of the best Jokers we've ever seen. And, uh, go back further with Batman. Oh, even back further? Yeah. Uh, who who else was it that got Michael captured? Keaton. Michael Keaton. Oh, right. Yes. The, the, they went ballistic. They were like, seriously? Fucking Beetlejuice as Batman? Mr. Mom? <laughs> Mr. Mom as Batman? Had that yes. film been out before by you know before 1989, Multiplicity is Batman? <laughs> oh, God. 
Um, yeah. But so then yeah. Obviously, we're seeing we're seeing it again with uh, Ben Affleck <laughs> as as Batman. And um, Ma- uh, Dan, you mentioned yesterday that this man is cursed to have his name combined with other things <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for the rest of his life. Benefer and Batfleck. <laughs> um, but this is of course know, the Bonzo debate. If you could find the clip of uh, the scene from um, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back where Ben Affleck is talking about the internet. Mm-hmm. Wish I held onto a little piece of that thing because the buzz is any indicator that movie's going to make some huge bank. What buzz? The internet buzz. What the fuck is the internet? The internet is a communications tool used the world over where people can come together to bitch about movies and share pornography with one another. Here's what we're looking for, moviepoopshoot.com. Poopshoot, yeah. This is a site populated by militant movie buffs, sad, pathetic little bastards living in their parents' basement, downloading scripts and what they think is inside information about movies and actors they claim to despise yet can't stop discussing. Okay, this is about Blunt Man and Chronic right here. Inside sources tell me Miramax is starting production this Friday on their adaptation of underground comic fave Blunt Man and Chronic. Friday? Shit, does it say he was fucking playing us in the movie? No, but it's Miramax, so I'm sure it'll be Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. You know, they put them in a bunch of movies. Who? You know, those kids from uh, Good Will Hunting. You mean that fucking movie with Mork from Ork in it? Yeah, I wasn't a big fan either. But Affleck was the bomb in Phantoms. Word, bitch. Phantoms like a motherfucker. What's up now? Uh, all right, uh, so here we go. Now, this is the shoot-back section. This is where the people who read the news get to chime in with their two cents. For example, we got a guy here with the chick magnet net handle Wampa 1 opining on what he thinks about Blunt Man and Chronic. He says, Blunt Man and Chronic and their stupid alter egos, Jay and Silent Bob, only work in small doses, if at all. They don't deserve their own movie. He's got a point. Fuck him. What's the next one say? This is entitled, Fuck Them Up Their Stupid Asses. Blunt Man and Chronic is the worst comic I ever read. Jay and Silent Bob are stupid characters, a couple of stoners who spout dumbass catchphrases like a third-rate Cheech and Chong or Bill and Ted. Fuck Jay and Silent Bob. Fuck them up their stupid asses. Who the fuck said that shit? He calls himself Magnolia fan. All right, here, check this one out. Jay and Silent Bob are one-note jokes that only stoners laugh at. They're fucking clown shoes. If they were real, I'd beat the shit out of them for being so stupid. I, for one, will be boycotting this movie. Who's with me? Then there's like uh, 50 more posts of people who are joining Spartacus. Here's boycott. I'm gonna kill all these. When I found that clip after everything exploded, I was just—I almost couldn't believe that. <laughs> Seeing that, it seemed like a glitch in the Matrix. Like, uh, just—he had to have known this was coming. I people were abusing the Affleck was the bomb in Phantoms line, for, which is from that scene. Oh, oh yeah, Spoken by Affleck. Yeah, <laughs> people let were people saying have, Batman was the bomb in Phantoms. Let let people have that one. Kevin Smith has written so little dialogue that you can actually quote without sounding like a jackass. Uh-huh. <laughs> it works on the top. Yes, let him have that one. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, so yeah, yeah that's, that's the one that I can think of. Keaton as but... Batman, Ledger as Joker. Um, I'm struggling to think of anything else that surrounded the more recent Batman films. I went looking for this the other day to see if this had happened. I can't find any evidence that during the 1960s Batman, anyone thought it was a huge deal at all that Catwoman was black in the third season. Like, today, that would be huge. Yeah. That would but be Daily I, Mail huge. Yeah, I, I, it, it doesn't seem like anyone actually gave that much of a shit at the time. It, it's a it's a weird kind of, uh, like, a, a shift. Because that, I mean, 
remember how people acted when Halle Berry was Catwoman? Now, granted, the movie's awful. <laughs> but, like, before the movie came out, before yeah. we saw trailer number one, uh-huh. people lost their shit that Catwoman w- was not going to be Caucasian in this movie. Yeah. And also, uh, what's his face in Let's Thor? find the least relevant aspect of that film. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the least contributory <laughs> for why that film was one of the worst films ever made. Her ethnicity. Carry on. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's always good to look at these things with the actresses because you always, what you end up with is a bunch of guys trying not to say what they're actually thinking, which is, this is harder for me to use as pornography now for whatever reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole bunch of literally look look right between the lines of the people losing their shit about Halle Berry in that movie, and it's a whole lot of guys trying not to say that they find black women less attractive. I literally could not jacket a Catwoman because it's so bad; it would just cause instant and permanent floppery. You see, I was trying to be uh, very clean about that, so yeah. <laughs> I guys, this is not a very clean show. Good. Oh, good. Okay. Um. <laughs> in a similar vibe, uh, Idris Elba cast as Heimdall in oh, uh, Thor. That that yeah. caused a bit of a kerfuffle. I want a black James Bond just to oh. see what the English papers say. Like I said, Daily Mail. That the first the first hour after that is announced, they'll be like, "We can't say it, but you're all thinking it." And now, I also want, just want to see Idris Elba play Bond because that would be fucking incredible. That would be that, that would be awesome. That'd be badass. I heard also people wanted to be um, the Doctor. Oh yeah, the Doctor. Too. Yeah. The hit scare the kids. <laughs> <laughs> see, Bond is all right, scary, but the Doctor's got to be somewhat cuddly. Okay, let me just bring it right back to a rather interesting one: Tom Cruise versus Anne Rice. Yep. Anyone remember oh, yeah. this? This yeah. was a movement spearheaded by the author of Interview with a Vampire, Anne Rice, when she found out that uh, Tom Cruise had been cast as Lestat. Uh, she was originally, this is bullshit, this guy, what, fucking Maverick? Is, is my vampire, my Lestat, the guy I put so much effort into? And ultimately, being the creator, she had every right to complain. She had every right to say, what the fuck? She did also sign a contract that basically gave what was that Warner Brothers? I, I think so. Yeah, um, that, that feels that, that feels like a Warner Brothers movie in the in that, in that period. It had an old snap case. I remember that on uh, on DVD. Uh, oh, then it was Warner Brothers. Okay, um, but God, she, she signed the contract that basically allowed them to uh, to make that um, casting decision. She so ultimately. She almost had less right than the fans <laughs> to actually complain because the fans weren't getting dick out of it. They were just getting a movie. She got bajillions of dollars or whatever it actually it cost to license off Interview with a Vampire. Um, she had literally legally signed that decision away. Now, the irony is that was the good Lestat movie. Interview yeah. with a Vampire is a decent vampire film, especially by today's standards. Um, the vampire Lestat was an atrocity. But I don't think she can blame at that point. Didn't she eventually come around on Tom Cruise though when she actually saw yeah. it? Yeah, she said she, she said it was fine eventually. Basically, uh, he, he harnessed the humor of the character and um, was extremely compelling. And uh, yeah, that's that's a that's a good movie to to watch if you want to see Tom Cruise play a nasty asshole who's also very fun to watch. A Star Wars special editions, anyone? 
Yeah. The amount of <laughs> shit that has gone on. And I, here's what I've got to hand, hold up my hands and say, mea culpa here. I have totally been part of the Star Wars Special Edition rage. Yeah. But I would like to add a caveat. And this is obviously null and void now that Lucas has sold it all to uh, Disney because he won't be meddling with his older films again. Um, I didn't mind every time Lucas made a new version. All I really wanted was the best quality version of the originals. And I kind of had a soft spot for the 2004 DVD editions as well. The the 97 one's probably the weakest of the lot so far, except Jedi in the Blu-ray box set because of the additional at the very end, which screws up the climax of the original trilogy. Yeah. Uh, so all I really wanted was, you know, just to buy that Blu-ray box set, spend my money, that's fine. We've also, you know, bought out the uh, the originals on Blu-ray as well. You can buy that for an additional blah, blah, blah dollars. Just, I don't mind the meddling. Just, I, I like as as good quality as possible. What I now currently have are the original versions of the trilogy in uh, non-anamorphically justified DVD, which basically is the little box in the middle of the screen. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, losing access to the original thing is really the main sticking point there. Yeah. Um, now, so obviously this the Star Wars Special Editions thing uh, goes off on a huge tangent. And basically, we can't argue against a creator changing his creation if in the same breath we're also saying that a creator has every right to not change their creation. Ultimately, when it comes down to it, it's the, it's the creator's prerogative. Yeah. yeah, well, I think the main difference with that, and again, bringing it back to Mass Effect, was the creator... The Mass Effect changed because the fans demanded it. Yeah. And then Star Wars changed because because Lucas wanted it. Lucas was never really happy with it. Yeah. And I mean, and I I am torn about it because it does feel like he's beating a dead horse now. And, um, well, I guess not anymore because now Disney has that dead horse to deal with. Um, (laughs) And it's freaking starting the shit out of that dead horse. (laughs) There you go. Um, But... I just, I always kind of feel like uh, there is a certain point that you need to stop working on your own things because you, it is a very real thing when you overwork something and then you break it. Um, this is true in any art, any movie, any, like, anything. Um, you need to let go of things and move on. <laughs> um, actually, now that you mention it, he did. And I think that may actually be largely down to the fact that people called him a horrible person on a daily basis. Ugh. For years. But he didn't deserve that either. Like, it's... The whole Indiana... you George Lucas and Steven Spielberg raped my childhood thing about Indiana Jones. It was one of the most crass, genuinely unsettlingly uh, heartless complaint I've ever heard about a piece of work. You know, I, I have nothing but, uh, you know, dislike for pretty much everything that, you know, was done to the original trilogy and most of the prequels are just, they're just not very good films, you know, so like as, as a fan, they're painful, Mm. but as, as someone who, you know, tries to work in this business as well, you know, at this point, if by the time, uh, by the time, uh, uh, Revenge of the Sith was coming out, you know, I was very much on Lucas's side of, you know, if he is at this point just doing this out of sour grapes, then I understand. (laughs) <laughs> because pe- people have taken the, there, there's a point at which you know being disappointed morphs into like personal affrontery and you really do have to get a life oh absolutely 
It's, it's as much right as we have to feel a certain way about the the uh, films and games and whatever that come out. The artist has just as much every right to go back and recreate things. Whether or not they should, of course, is a different situation. But uh, mm. but yeah. See, what I love is um, big box sets with multiple cuts of it. Has anyone got the Blade Runner multiple oh. cut edition? Oh yeah, that's fantastic spiffy you can literally just open the box and go hmm which version will i be watching today that's all i really wanted from star wars i think we'll get that someday at at some point disney's not going to leave that money on the table that is true actually they're going to ride that space cow all the way to the moon and back okay um lost and battlestar galactica Two TV shows that, according to their fan base, did not end well. I've not actually seen the end of Lost, although I have had it spoiled for me several times. Um, I think I got to about season three and then stopped... Oh, no, beginning of season four and then stopped because I was bored out of my mind. Did either of those escalate to a full-on, like, petitions, change, redo? No, or was it, it was just, just like, a bitch that, fest. That was awful. Yeah, I, just I have, however, seen the end of Battlestar Galactica, and I'm the only person in the world who thought that the ending was brilliant, apart from my wife, who also thought the ending was brilliant. I, I don't remember a major, like, petition thing. and the t- TV seems to run on a much more reasonable mm. thing, for the most part. I, I don't know if there's, like, a, a reason behind that, but it seems like, like movies... And like games, people are out of control with yeah. the with the fan entitlement. Movies, you know, quite a bit. Comics, it's always been a clusterfuck. Uh, you know, TV people seem to go, yeah, okay. You know, like I, I remember after the end of Lost, there were two days of, you know, people going, what? <laughs> you know, and I, and and me who was only ever like a casually interested person in Lost, like I thought the first season, okay, this is really compelling. And as it went on, I was kind of like. You know, guys, I played Mist, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and uh, it was like you know, I was like, okay, this is all right. It's a character thing, but uh, you know, by the time it got to the end, I went, huh? Well, that kind of sucks. All right, what else is on? Well, I think I mean actually, Alex, you asked this last week, like, why don't people freak out over you know, like Inception? There's the ending of Inception, and. Uh, I, I was thinking about it, and it's really because there's just a different audience involved the entire time. Um, you know, there's a certain amount of crossover. There's a vendor. Oh, absolutely, and that's why I think we also see more hostile responses to movies like Superman and Batman and stuff that revolves within the comic book and video game culture as well. Do against there will be blood. Yeah, and that's why you don't see complaints about that because that's not the same audience. They're not watching it for the same reasons, and you know, and movies do have their issues uh, as well. But I mean, it just doesn't seem like it's as crazy violent as comics and, and games. IP is definitely a factor in that case. Like you've got Inception, and you got There Will Be Blood, two new IPs, as opposed to characters that have been around for decades. That a, a lot of a lot of people within our ilk feel a certain ownership over, whether they deserve to feel that ownership or not. That's uh, it, it's like I'm guilty of it too. I see Shyamalan's The Last Airbender, and I get, and I get furious. Yeah. But I mean, I d- he was well within his rights to make it, but. Yeah, like uh, yeah, I, can, I can understand speaking. the fury, <laughs> <laughs> but also, I think we can probably I mean, dispute that anyway. Yeah, but even if it wasn't the IP, it was just a bad movie anyway. 
you know. Yeah, and even, it's, just, it's kind of like one of those things where you watch it and it's like, you, you should have known better. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Last Dan Bender is just terrible all around. The the, yeah. the movie, the movie, the movie. I stress the movie. Holy shit! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah no, everyone. <laughs> no, knows. we know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. you know that, Bob. Don't you know that? Don't you, Bob? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> okay. Um, anyone remember what happened when Devil May Cry came to 360? Yeah. <laughs> Petitions, Sony. How dare you release our game on another platform? This is an immense what the fuck moment. I just I don't even understand the lo- the logistics behind that. It's tribalism. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> because Taliban it's, levels of fan uh, fan uh, of uh, brand loyalty to the point where you don't even want someone else sharing the cake that they will basically make two cakes of. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, it's co- console exclusivity is. St- Stupid at this point, anyway. But that—that's a whole other thing. Am I coming through okay? I'm yeah, no, you're fine. Fine. okay. Con- console exclusivity is a stupid thing these days, anyway. Unless we're talking about like someone like, like Nintendo, where that's the whole point yeah. is that they're selling it to like brand their things. You know, the idea that like Devil May Cry, you know, was only ever on PlayStation because that was the only game in town when Devil May Cry was new. Mm. And then it shows up on 360. It's like, what? What are you upset about that you can't lord being able to play this game over Xbox owners anymore? But it's it's straight ahead tribalism. It's we don't want someone else to have something we have. You know, it's taking away something that they had used to define themselves as somehow special and better. It's you know, it's it's Johnny Damon playing for the Yankees. You know, what uh, what do you want? This reminds me of uh, a small child at their birthday party crying because all the other children are eating their cake. And it's like, you you literally couldn't eat all that cake yourself anyway. Or or like, you know, like I said, there is enough cake for everyone. It's not an issue. It's one less round of ammunition in the, uh, like when when you're going into battle with the console wars with other people on forums, like you've got all the exclusives that you can... (laughs) That like all the pro and con lists you've got of all the exclusives, you just basically lost one less point, one less point of argument for that terribly stupid debate you were about to have. And as it turned out, Devil May Cry Four didn't exactly set the world on fire anyway. No. Speaking of Devil, speaking of Devil May Cry though. Oh God, yes, proving once again that they are the nicest of all fan bases. The Devil May Cry crew um, shit their pants with pure fury when it turned out that Dante didn't have white hair and that he was... For some reason, emos have become the enemy. (laughs) Why? Emo is a a, a politically correct way for them to say gay. Seriously? Let's let's just drop that right out on the table. They were (laughs) upset that Dante, who has always been a fetish figure... Mm-hmm. But but you know in the uh, in the originals he was sort of like the the manga acceptable fetish figure you know where it was yeah. all where you know he he also seemed a little badass whereas new Dante you know seemed a little more like you know the the sexy male archetype in a Western model sense mm. you know he, he he was a little less Vegeta a little more Edward Cullen sort of made them a bit uncomfortable I I I, I you can say that I'm not going to necessarily imply that but uh, it's a possibility. They also um, were angry that it uh, passed over to uh, Ninja Theory, who have a proven track record for really good characterization, versus Capcom, who don't. 
it's difficult to tell how much the fan outrage has affected this one. Like it, the game itself, obviously, was not heavily affected at all. They went forward as they were planning to. The main thing will be to see whether or not Ninja Theory ever gets Devil May Cry again, mm-hmm. or if it, it'll, the next uh, announced Devil May Cry game will probably tell us a lot. See, I want people to support Ninja Theory. This is one of those. Yeah, the fact that they use performance capture makes them special. I want to see performance capture just brought forwards. It's like with Image Movers Digital. I really cared about that studio. And now they are dead. Thank you. I did love that game. I hope, yeah, I hope they, uh, I, Ninja Theory is, really deserves to have a huge success at some point. They've had lots of good games that have been received pretty well. I, I would love for them to get a huge hit at some, someday. Yeah. Yeah. This one's probably not going to be massively familiar to you guys. If, if it is, then let me know. Um, if you've heard of uh, the Earth's Children series of books... I have not. I have not either. This is just a good example of uh, the differences in uh, medium. Um, the last book that was brought out, The Land of Painted Caves, basically rounds off a very, very long-standing series, decades old. Um, yeah. And it is empirically rubbish. Is, is this the Isla series? Yeah, Isla. Okay, yeah, all right. Uh, so it I, is... I oh, no, Jean M. Owl. Yeah. Um, right, so much of Gene uh, M. O's fan base uh, complained that this book was terrible and uh, ended in a way that just seemed to fall completely flat and didn't take the characters in a way that it made that it made sense to. Now, interestingly enough, almost no one was able to read it and go, "No, do you see what she's done here?" It really did end up just basically as, as it was a mess. But that's where it ended. They complained. They let it go. Because that's what happens with books. <laughs> yeah. When I heard that that had been published and that this was turning into a big deal, my reaction was they were still writing those. Yeah. This is this is the Clan of the Cave Bear series. This is what what, it, what, it, what it's probably better known as. Yeah. Because people remember like the first one in the series because they made it into a god awful movie <laughs> with Daryl Hannah and Kabuki makeup. Yeah. It's, but it's where Isla's name and Chrono Trigger comes from. So there's that. Oh right. Uh, the original book was 1980, so yeah, it's like um, the Land of Painted Caves was 2011, so it's 31 years of writing one, two, three, four, five, six books. So a, a lot of people justifiably spent a lot of time with these characters, and they grew up with them, and so it it was yeah, there were crushing disappointments in every uh, medium, but nobody demanded that Gene go back and rewrite it. A lot of people wrote fanfic and went, that's bollocks, I'll do it myself. And fortunately, with literature, you can pretty much do that. You can't make a Mass Effect in your basement, but you could write a book. It won't even take you massively long if you really put all your efforts into it. And you can basically rewrite it and go, you know what? I don't even trust you with this IP anymore, Gene M. Oul. I'm going to write it myself. And that's one of the bonuses of literature. Did people freak out at the end of Harry Potter for any reason? Oh, yeah. Because, yeah, because yeah, I, I, I didn't read the Harry Potter books because I just didn't like them. But, well, I also just didn't like reading. But, because <laughs> um, I remember she, she killed off a lot of the characters at the end. And I don't, I don't really remember a giant backlash over it. But maybe it's because I just wasn't paying attention. It wasn't really vicious. There was yeah. um, there was quite a bit of complaints about like when Goblet of Fire came out they were like why are you making this as one movie it should be two and then when um, oh yeah that was it actually now that you mention it when 
Deathly Hallows came out. Why are you making this as two movies? It should be one. You're making us pay two tickets for, for one movie. It should be one movie. Now that you've actually, uh, I mean, I see, uh, Lily, have you seen all of these films? I saw all of but the last two. So. Not the person to ask on this one. And Dan, you've seen yeah. them because yeah. you're on the podcast. <laughs> uh, both films, absolutely bloody fantastic. High point yeah, of the good. series. Yeah, uh, they good they made think absolutely this, the right choice. Yeah, the split, I think, was a was a pretty smart decision. There is, there have been various backlashes on on the whole, um, you know, why are you making us pay to see two movies? Like Kill Bill. They were like, why are you making us pay to see two movies? Um, it's like we, you, you don't have to see both. It's, yeah. f- films get sequels all the time. Why is that okay? Also, I mean, like, you're getting more of a good thing. Yeah. Why are you complaining? <laughs> it is a redundant... I mean, basically, if it's, like, with The Hobbit, people were complaining, this should be two films, it's too long and it's too bloated. There actually may be something in that. We'll need to wait until we get to the third movie, but we can't make that informed assessment until we've seen all three. Uh, but the people were like, Peter Jackson is ripping us off! Because that's all Peter Jackson is to them. Just this sort of, you know, uh, movie mastermind just sitting in his enormous Hollywood mansion, you know, wanking himself off into a pool of gold because, you know, you know he's, he's just forcing people's arm. And let's, let, let's make one film. No, let's make three films. Yes, because that's exactly how it worked. No, 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 I was just saying, you know, you bring up the Peter Jackson thing again, having the face. That's just the target that people go for now. Because yeah. it is a person to attack yeah. instead of just a movie. There is actually a reason why his wife, Fran Walsh, never comes out into the spotlight. She is a huge, massive part of the writing of those books. But she lets him be the face of that particular operation. And I understand why. Because the psychological the, the psychological impact of that, unless you are massively thick-skinned, um, it's not fair to, to, to be required to put yourself above the parapet. Is that just bang head on the table there? <laughs> no, sorry, that was my drawer closet. Okay, um, let's just hop, skip, and jump to the end of this particular section. Uh, we've already talked about uh, Ben Affleck cast as Batman. Do you remember the rumours that Justin Bieber uh, would be uh, cast as Robin because of that one picture? And uh, Bob, didn't you have an episode just about did. this? That, that, that was this past week's episode. Yeah, and you pointed out all of the reasons why that script literally could not be a script for the new Batman and yeah. uh, Superman film. I'm, I'm disappointed. I kind of wanted him to do it. Mm. Because, not, not because I think he'd be good. I think it would be not, uh, not, not a very good thing. But, uh, I, I, at this point, I like watching really, really hard, hardcore Batman fans suffer. <laughs> you are getting a bit tired of Batman yourself now, though, aren't well, you? Well, it's, it's, I like Batman just fine. I'm sick to death of Frank Miller, Christopher Nolan Batman. I'm sick to death death of this shit but and 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 i like the christopher nolan batman move two of the christopher batman movie nolan batman movies a lot but there are like gradations of like that like there are some very good fandoms like for all of the the jokes that get tossed at them for being a a big tumblr phenomenon doctor who fans are remarkably well behaved as Mm. as as nerd subcultures go you know it's uh it's i don't know if that was always the case but the modern incarnation thereof is really well behaved, you know, polite, n- generally nice, has kind of like an open-minded thing going on. Batman fandom right now is the pit of bad nerd behavior. <laughs> it is the worst goddamn fandom on the planet. 
And it seems to be because the Batman character has spent so long as basically the ultimate revenge fantasy for entitled, sheltered white males. You know, that that's all it has in terms of, like, really boisterous voice. So, I mean, you can change Superman and people go, eh, yeah, okay, Superman, you know, it goes through, you know, Spider-Man, it goes back and forth in the movies. But, you know, when you do anything to Batman that would make him less of this Paul Kersey punisher, you know, go out and punch, you know, the criminal poor to death because I'm sad about mom and dad, you know, and yet somehow I'm still rich. If you do anything to that... You know, people flip their shit because you're picking at something that they've adopted as like this ultimate survivalist asshole fantasy. And I, I would love nothing more than for the Ben Affleck version to be exactly what they're afraid of. I, <laughs> I, I hope. He's I wanted to be like an, a '60s Batman. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> during the Batusi. I, I hope he smiles. I hope he cracks jokes. You know, I hope he wears the blue and gray and has the yellow oval around the uh, the bat. I hope he doesn't want to kill people. I hope he's like I, I hope he does like Adam West Batman and doesn't yeah. park the Batmobile in a handicapped space. Nice. Or like running around with a bomb. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hope just because I want to watch these pricks suffer. I want to watch them writhe and scream. You do know, of course, that this come upcoming film will be an enormous list of boxes being ticked. Yeah, I know. They can't afford to take a chance on, on this one. It's the, uh, the the second act of the uh, the Justice League. And there is, you pointed out this one before, there is a fetishizing of his um, detective skills and how he's always prepared for everything. Ergo, yeah. one of the most boring conversations you can have is who would win in a fight between Batman and blah, blah, blah with any, like, super Batman fan, David Hartrick accepted, uh, because Hartrick would consider it for a moment without just saying, well, Batman, because he will be prepared to go do X, Y, Z. Um, the, <sighs> seriously, Batman gets his ass handed to him all the time, and perspective is one thing I would help to bring Bat fans everywhere. Interestingly enough, Bob, you gave me some perspective. When I uh, was watching your, um, you, you sent me the fourth of the, uh, going back to the old, uh, four, the original four Batman films, not kind of the Adam West one, uh, and I watched Batman Forever cringing all the time. Uh, I actually ended up combining Forever and, and Robin into one podcast, which was tough to get through, but actually ended up being really funny, and I was very harsh on Forever, but you pointed out a bit which I completely missed at the very end uh, he says uh, I'm Batman and Bruce Wayne not because I want to be now because I choose to be and you pointed out that that is a psychological barrier breached and that is a circle coming around and that's brilliant and that was actually a really good bit at the end of uh, Batman Forever however it's just surrounded by an enormous explosion of neon shit which yeah. I can't stand, especially Jim Carrey's ridiculous performance. But you did point out that there were deeper things in the... Uh, there was a deeper aspect to that film, and I will give it a bit more credence next time. They were trying. If, if you get the, 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 the DVDs, have a lot of deleted scenes on there that... Oh, yeah, no, I, I watched them all, yeah. I don't know would have made it a better movie, because I don't... The I bit don't about the journal would definitely have uh, improved it. Yeah, but then you've got shirtless Val Kilmer hugging a giant bat. <laughs> <laughs> but that would make the bat fans angry. Have we have we all seen this? Uh, I've seen it. No. I have not seen this. Describe okay, it. It's, 
on the in Batman for Batman Forever, the the, the movie that we got was was cut to hell by mm-hmm. by the the studio. I don't know if it ever would have been good, but they made all kinds of demands of the production of Joel Schumacher, who actually wanted to do something more akin to, to Batman Year One at the time, and uh, instead they wanted more of a what was at the time a new phrase, toyetic. Yes, I Which, yeah. When uh, I, I'm, I'm sure Dan, you must be familiar with toyetic. Yeah. Have you been yeah. asked to make extra credits more toyetic, Dan? Because I want those figures. <laughs> <laughs> we want to be more toyetic. Yeah, we want. Yeah, we want toys too. Actually, carry on, Bob. <laughs> the um, uh, do be aware. I have gone into these films in excruciating detail, so you might just be retreading old ground. Gotcha. In the fi- in the finale, um, there's there's a, an effect that they keep using in Batman Forever of a big bat with red eyes flying towards the camera mm-hmm. that they use as an as an overlay for scenes for like the Riddler having a nightmare about Batman and Batman having a nightmare about himself. That's originally part of in the movie in that scene where uh, Bruce Wayne go where uh, he's talking to Alfred in the back cave and then he he talks about himself and then figures out he wants to be Batman again. Um, there's a whole stretch where he remember he has the vision of falling into the cave and the bats coming around him and it's represented by this figure of the big bat flapping. What we don't see is they actually built a giant animatronic of what looks like the man bat. I was just saying, yeah, like Kirk Landstrom. Of a, of a huge bat with huge wings that's meant to be slightly larger than Val Kilmer. And the way that they visualize bat, you know, Bruce Wayne recommitting to being Batman in a new way is this like vision quest scene of Val Kilmer sort of <laughs> you know, like, sh- like stripped to his pants, you know, shirtless in really good shape at the time, you know, standing in the middle of this cave bathed in white light against otherwise blackness, like, you know, opening his arms in outstretched crucifix pose so that he can be embraced by this giant animatronic bat and then it like you know fade cuts to him and the bat having merged into batman once again it's the i would have swapped that scene thing for any so other basic. scene in the film <laughs> the diamond it's, robbery it's incredible it's and it's weird because you look at this and you think they really thought this was going to wind up on screen in this you know huge budget movie it, it's not a great animatronic that's probably part of it Extended cut, we demand it. (laughs) Okay, so if if you folks are new to Gonzo, Digital Gonzo 85, Batman Forever, slash Batman and Robin is where I go into that. That is one of the various uh, Batman movie uh, podcasts that I've done. Um, Let's move on to Bioshock. Anybody remember when Bioshock 2 came out? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Why are you even making a sequel to this game? This first game was great. It doesn't need a sequel. That appeared to be the gen- general uh, idea on it. And then when people started playing, they were like, it's just the same with barnacles on it. And, you know, well, maybe I will grudgingly admit slightly better combat. And, uh, d- d- yeah, well, well, there's no point having multiplayer on it because that's just like pandering to the Call of Duty. Okay, so the multiplayer is really quite good. And what else can we complain about? Um, oh, look, there's something else over here. Uh, then Bioshock Infinite came out and they bitched about the the, the combat being boring or the ending being confusing or the various other things and there was a lot of bitching about Bioshock Infinite now in retrospect Bioshock 2 and I loved it the first time is my favourite of the series really? and if I, if I stick that on my uh, the top 50 games when I stick that on YouTube you, you bet your ass that the moment that that comes up I'm going to get in the comments why the fuck have you chosen Bioshock 2 the worst one out of the Bioshock trilogy or I think maybe what people need to understand yeah. with the Bioshock series is that they're uh, they're really intended to be their own individual works. 
Yeah. And I think it took me a while to realize that too. Like I was definitely on the same story being told again and again. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I remember when infinite came out, I, I was upset because it wasn't in the sea. I mean, I thought that it looked really cool, but I was just like, "Uh, I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's written in the, in the whole universe that we had before. And I think it was also because when we first saw the first few images of uh, Elizabeth, she was very cartoony. Mm. And I was afraid that that meant something that they were not, they were almost not taking themselves as seriously as before. Mm. But I mean, I obviously gave it a chance that I loved Bioshock Infinite. So Uh, Dan, you on that show too. I've just been everywhere on your podcast. You have. And speaking of sluts, if you look up fan backlash on Google right now, the first four pages are devoted to fan backlash over the casting on... Uh, There's been so many. Yeah, you're going to give us a little bit more. <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh. <laughs> and there was a groan. <laughs> okay, uh, we're not going to go into this too much, but uh, Sharon once did a really fantastic little uh, review of Fifty Shades uh, and the uh, sequel, and uh, eventually she may do the third one. It is was one of the most offensive books to all of her sensibilities <laughs> that she's ever read. Uh, the, uh, the the psychological implications of the entire book were utterly dire, and this was being taken to the breast of many a quivering mum. Now, the reason people were bitching over the casting is because they wanted people they knew, and they cast some relative unknowns, including Melanie Griffith's daughter. And that wasn't good enough. That created an enormous backlash. Now, what the... I don't know if it's the producer or the casting agent or someone in charge of the basic uh, final decision did, rather than say, oh, you don't like these guys? Okay, we'll, we'll try again. Do you know what he said? Here it is. This is from Digital Spy. Uh, some fans quickly took to the internet to voice their displeasure over the pairing, the casting of Charlie Hunnam, whoever he is, and Dakota Johnson, daughter of Melanie Griffith, as Christian Grey and Anastasia Steele. 12% of fans believe that she'll be great in the role. 88% of fans who voted in this fucking poll uh, think she, that she isn't who I wanted for the part. Well, of course she isn't who you wanted for the part. You've only just heard of her! Bear in mind that this 88% of fans constitutes a whopping 63 votes. So, as always, the fans screaming the loudest represent only a tiny, 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 tiny percentage of the full fan base. And, of course, the ones who screamed the loudest among this small percentage were the ones who were also sending death threats to the producers, as well as E.L. James, the writer. Apparently, they wanted Matt Bomer whoever he is, I know he played Superman in one of the animated films, and Alexis Bledel, who you won't remember from Gilmore Girls. Actually, my crowd will remember from Sin City. She was uh, Becky, the girl who betrayed all the prostitutes, and she has lovely big blue eyes, which, of course, as we all know, is the key aspect of playing Anastasia Steele. Anyway, uh, Social Network producer uh, Dana Brunetti, who is producing the film alongside uh, Michael DeLuca, took to his Twitter page to defend these choices. There is a lot that goes into casting that isn't just looks. Talent, availability, their desire to do it, chemistry with other actors. So if your favourite wasn't cast, then it's most likely due to something on that list. Keep that in mind while hating and keep perspective. There's that magic word again. Grow a pair. Grow up. 
just this is this is a movie. This is how movies work. We cast someone, and if you if someone that you wanted to be in this role didn't end up in the role then it's because they were missing one of the various criteria we needed the financials of it there's all of these various variables that go into it and links to sacrifice their career to this franchise basically just you know whether they want to work on uh, adapting a piece of shit book into an nc-17 rated movie that is going to be the most popular nc-17 rated movie of all time. It is going to sell a bajillion tickets. But this person will forevermore be Mr. Grey. And this girl will forevermore be what's her name from that book? <laughs> um, Who's voicing the inner goddess? Fred Tattershaw. <laughs> <laughs> Doing the Hulk. <laughs> Mustache man strong, but not strong enough. Ultimately, what he tried to get across was, look, this is this is how movie casting works. Um, we're the experts on this. You're just going to have to trust us. And that is the right way to respond to fan backlash. Because there's nothing else they can say apart from, well, I still would have preferred if you'd been on Because you can't come back from that. You can't then retaliate with, oh, I think we know a little bit about making movies more than you do, movie-making man. Actually, this is a yeah, change of tone. How has it come to be that we, as fans, are now more empowered in the creative process? So basically, what had to fall into place to actually give us this ability to affect things? The internet. Yeah. Is the short answer. But it really yeah. is, though. If you think about it, like... The reason why we didn't see as much backlash as we used to is because we we have a much bigger tool to be loud on. Um, and that also brings up the question of, is it really a huge amount of people or is it just a fraction of people who are just the loudest? Um, I mean, it's in no doubt a lot of people anyway. but And it, it's kind of this weird, ironic... Um, it's weird because the the internet is also really good at bringing us together as nerds. Mm. You know, we have a place to feel welcome and we have a place to make friends. Like, I wouldn't know any of you guys if it wasn't for the internet where we can make things and talk to each other. And therefore we also, you know, and, and like I've made some really great lifelong friends through, through just, yeah, through all of this. And then it's also just this big... Um, mess of they're just really dark places on Reddit and there are really just dark forums that get very angry and I think um, when you have that mixed with the ability to be anonymous on it um, and also you feel in, the people feel entitled because they're spending money mm. so therefore they have the control they feel like they have the control over the artistic statement that somebody's trying to like say like they're investors somehow yeah, shareholders exactly the internet changed fandom so much, partially because it allowed everything to have a vocal fandom. Like, previously, you had, like, Star Wars, Star Trek, Doctor Who, fine, had, you know, big vocal fandoms. They published fanzines. You know, comic books always had the convention circuit separately from everything else, so there was always, a like, a, a greater meeting of creators and fans. But, like, there are fandoms that did not exist before, like, the... It, are we all familiar with the movie Legend? Yes. With Ridley Scott's movie. It's it's a pretty good movie with Tom Cruise. Is there now a bunch of what are they called crab heads? <laughs> <laughs> There's there, that movie did not have. It had people that knew of it, 
Yeah. But like the only reason that ever came out on like a big DVD release with all the different music and cuts was because people who also liked this movie found each other across the ocean of time through the internet. And as I was like, wow, hey, there's actually a lot of people that like this. I mean, they none of them seem to live within walking distance of one another, but they exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The interesting, the the uh, the actual numbers at stake here, though, because um, if you remember the uh, the folks who were trying to retake Mass Effect, um, who when they got together called themselves Retake Mass Effect Three, uh, they boasted 140,000 supporters. 140,000, which sounds like a fuck ton of people. However, 2.8 million units worldwide copies of Mass Effect 3 sold. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone who wasn't in the 140,000 people thought the ending was peachy and didn't have a problem. But it does mean that the vocal minority were 0.5% of the total amount of people who had actually bought Mass Effect 3. That's not a majority voice. That's taking it upon yourself to change something that many other people may not have actually wanted changed. Yeah, that's what I mean by is it actually the larger number or is it just the louder number? Um, what they, they also tended to boast that they had 90% of the fans basically uh, agreed with them. It was 90% of the people who had actually logged into the Bioware fan site gotten themselves an account, and then voted on this particular issue, should we or should we not have a new ending. And of course, because of the overwhelming amount of people all just, you know, flocking there, of course they got a massive amount of uh, people fired up about it. But that would have required an equal or greater amount of people to go, no, that ending was brilliant, to really have a cause to fight for. And at the time, and still now, most people don't really consider it to be all that important. Yeah. There is something to the fact that we I mean, not only have that sense of power in numbers now that we all can, can all find each other, but we have easier access to the creators than we ever mm. have before. Like, yeah. like where, where once you might, like, okay, you were dissatisfied with something that happened in a movie or TV show, you could write a letter to the studio, I guess, or maybe an individual if you could find their contact information somehow, yeah. and you'd never know if you were just the one person doing that or if there were actually tons of letters flooding in. Who knows? Mm. But that was the only way to express your dissatisfaction. And now you can pretty easily and quickly find and directly contact those people who made that thing you like over Twitter or or at least publicly express your fury in some public space where other people can rally around you. Again, the only real-world thing I can like event I can imagine that would be similar is like uh, being at a huge con-like packs, knowing the creator is in the same building, and not only can you find them, but you can rally a ton of mi- like-minded attendees to your cause, which is, which is terrifying. It would never happen at PAX. Yeah, it wouldn't <laughs> happen at PAX, but like I was just saying, that's the closest real-life thing I can... And there's also got to be something to the knowledge that you are squarely in the demographic for a product, and that studios are like courting your interest at events you care about, that mm. basically that the creators seem to be, to your perception, targeting you I'm sure that like that can very easily leading lead to developing a sense of ownership over the product itself. Not a not a right, true like sense like deserved sense of ownership, but uh, I expect that's where some of that entitlement comes from. The the, the, the movie studios and game publishers, I, I think, have brought some, not all, but some of this on themselves by attempting to, and a lot of them succeeding in recognizing how powerful internet fandom was going to be and kind of trying to harness it early on, if that makes any sense. 
Yeah, I think you're right. I was around, you know, before I did this professionally, I, I was, you know, as just a, a movie nut nerd fan, whatever, uh, was around for when uh, Ain't It Cool News and uh, Chud and uh, Coming Soon and all of the, like, the wave one of the movie geek gossip sites kind of launched. And seeing the way the studios changed in their reaction to that. When it started out, they wanted to ignore it. They said, you know, we've always had hardcore fans. We've always had people that wanted to see production photos and, you know, launch complaints about these sorts of uh, projects. When it started to recognize that these guys weren't going away, a lot of them jumped in and said, you know what? We've got young guys in our marketing department who are really internet savvy. You know, if we throw these guys a bone and work with them and start saying, okay, here's, you know, some exclusives and, you know, try kind of like creating the idea, like Marvel is probably the, the best example of this, of a studio that figured out how to turn a fan base that was already predisposed to wanting their stuff to be good into free, unpaid, willing marketers just by, you know, being really, appearing to be really much on their side you know, like the, the Marvel films are made, and I'm talking about the, the Avengers related films. They, these are huge, corporately driven, commercial, everything everyone would complain about for every other blockbuster movies is true of these movies, but they make them with, you know, little details just for the fans and shout outs and they hold events and they are really good at cultivating the idea that these are basically fan films that happen to be being made by the massive Walt Disney Corporation. And getting these uh, folks on their side to be excited about them and talk about continuity in between the movies and keep this going in between films. Other studios have really worked the same thing. And the danger when you do that is if you build people up to thinking like they're part of the process, they're going to keep thinking they're part of the process. Mm. Okay, now I'm going to play for you a piece that Bob did called Crass Effect released around about the same time that all this blew up. If I'd seen this, it would have been in the Mass Effect shows. But I'm putting it in now because it's totally relevant. If you haven't heard my Mass Effect shows, go listen to the Mass Effect shows. You remember when I did that one episode where I mentioned that maybe the omnipresence of player-directed narrative and design options was making modern gaming less capable of delivering a storytelling experience of real richness and depth? This is sort of what I was talking about. See, while I'm aware that some noteworthy exceptions to this rule exist, generally speaking, stories come from storytellers. And part of what makes a good story is that you're receiving it as a reader, viewer, or listener as the singular vision of that storyteller. Or, in the case of, say, a movie, a team of storytellers. For every serious narrative art form, this much is true. The power dynamic between the teller and the audience is clearly established. The storyteller tells, the audience receives. This is partially why video games have a hard time telling good stories, as opposed to rote, ultra-simple setups or narratives so convoluted they'd be laughed at in any other medium. Gaming narratives have to either bend themselves around to create game experiences for the player, or frame narratives where every occurrence is so open-ended as to allow for multiple paths that it all ceases to mean anything. Generally speaking, direct audience participation will almost always make a story worse than it otherwise might have been. That's why nobody ever won a Pulitzer for a fucking choose-your-own-adventure book, or why the only live theater genre where improv actually works is comedy, where the inevitable absurdity can make things funnier. 
And now, with Mass Effect 3 and this ending fallout, a new wrinkle gets added. BioWare played up the choice and customization aspect so much as an important thing in the game-to-game marketing that now you've got fans who feel that their having played a game with player choice options entitles them to be considered part of the storytelling entity, and thus justified in their demands for the story to be changed to suit their preferred whims. Which in turn, eh, oh god, there's just too much entitlement and immaturity to deal with in this format. Okay, so instead, let's go through the general swath of these complaints one by one and See if we can't take care of this efficiently. Okay? Okay. Movie Bob, the ending sucked. Okay, this is a totally valid complaint. Again, I don't know if I'd agree or not, but that doesn't matter. Obviously, if you don't like the way something ended, especially a series of games you've poured hundreds of hours and a certain degree of emotional investment into, I mean, it's possible to overdo the complaining, like, say, making death threats or sending nasty emails or even just banging your head against the wall. Yeah, that's over the line. But make no mistake, I am not suggesting that people don't have the right to be unhappy. That would be ridiculous. I am not saying you don't have a right to be upset about the end of Mass Effect. Not saying that. Everyone clear on that? Okay. However... Movie Bob, BioWare lied to us. No, they didn't. Yes, they did. BioWare said our choices would make a difference, but there doesn't seem to be much of a difference. Okay, fair enough, but that's not lying. If the endings are different in some way, however small, and your various story selections and stats affected which one you got, then technically BioWare told the truth. You may not like what it wound up meaning, you may think they overstated the amount of difference or implied more difference than there was, but that's not really lying. That's marketing. Big difference. I mean, I get the frustration, but this is kind of like wanting to sue Sprinkled Chips Ahoy because there isn't literally a party in every bite. How about about this? Bioware owes me a better ending. No, they don't. I mean, again, I feel your pain, but O is a strong word and here used entirely incorrectly. They sold the game, you bought the game. Your relationship vis-a-vis who owes what to who is complete. But I put a lot of work into these games, so I deserve a better ending than they offered. Morally, you might have a point. Might. Otherwise, no, sorry, they don't owe you anything. I love Mass Effect. Probably more than some of the people who made it. That ought to count for something. See, guys, no. This is where you start sounding like the chick from Misery. Did you see that movie? Okay, go see that movie. This is something that fans of all stripes, myself included at times, have always had trouble coming to terms with. You don't own something just because you like it a whole bunch. You own your copy of it, and you can do what you want with that. But the franchise, the story, no. That's owned by the people who made it. Mass Effect belongs to Bioware. If they say this is how it ends, it's how it ends. That's how it works. You don't have to like it, but that's how it goes. Do you know how many things I love that didn't end the way I wanted them to? A lot. But this is different. The game's story was affected by my choices, which makes me a partial author. (sighs) Uh, Alright, admittedly the fact that Bioware made the player-altered narrative the central hook of the franchise clouds the issue a bit, but when you get right down to it, no, you are not the author of Mass Effect. You didn't create any part of that story, no matter how unique it was to you. You chose from a list of pre-selected options, which caused the story to take multiple but still pre-selected paths. I mean, come on now, think about it. This is like saying that filling up a Batman coloring book makes you part of the DC Comics art department. 
Look, what this all comes down to is the noxious wave of entitlement that has seemingly overtaken huge chunks of the gaming community this generation. We keep saying we want this medium to be taken seriously, for games to be judged with the same respect as other art forms, but then we insist that we are entitled to patches and DLC, not just to fix real problems, but to reshape the designer's original vision to more closely match our own. How the hell can we insist that the broader culture take games seriously when we refuse to take them seriously? If Mass Effect is to be judged as a narrative work of art as worthy of serious consideration and analysis as a similarly epic film or book, and I've been listening to Mass Effect fans insist that it is for the last five years now, then it needs to stand and be counted as one, as a complete, definitive thing in and of itself, perceived flaws and all. And if gamers want to be taken seriously, hell, to be worth taking seriously in the first place, we need to get over this perception that every game needs to be this malleable, empty thing that we can just patch and tweak to meet every one of our damn whims. If we don't, the medium will never grow as an art form, and we will never grow as gamers. Which cases has an overwhelmingly negative response to a piece of work had some unintentionally positive repercussions? That's a good one. Can you think of any? I've got two here. I would usually say, at least of the ones I can think of, that the negative responses serve to at least draw the ugly aspects of our culture into light where everyone can see it as a problem mm-hmm. and, and a discussion can arise there. Like. In a way, the Mass Effect 3 uproar highlighted how destructive and absurd that sort of backlash has the power, like, has the power to be and, like, the sort of damage it can cause to a medium that's still coming into its own. Yeah. Or, like, the, the more intense vitriolic hatred level that Anita Sarkeesian reveals some really nasty issues nested deep within gamer culture that we all kind of knew was there, but it, that really brought it to light. That's and, one of my two. I'll just, I'll just do one before we get to Sarkeesian, because the Sarkeesian thing is a massive discussion in itself. Likewise, the Ben Affleck Batman raging revealed how few people have seen Affleck's recent work, which is also a problem. Yeah, the, the, the fact that they were citing um, Jiggly? Jiggly? Jiggly and Daredevil. And Daredevil, from 2003. <laughs> this, is, oh, this community, you know, people really need to step outside of their own culture once in a while. Mm. Invented culture. I mean, I love video games and comic books and movies and what, but if that was the only thing I watched, do you know how, how much I would suck at this job? Mm. Yeah. More than, I think more actually, th- sorry, more than he sucks at this job now. <laughs> the zing. I think um, in in an episode of Extra Credits for how you want to be a game designer, we we make sure to point out like you need to study other things than just video games. Yeah. Um, Another and, yeah. and when we and say actually, study video games, we don't just mean play them. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And um, and that 
actually thinking back to what you said earlier, Bob, about how well-behaved um, fans are for Doctor Who, when you think about what actually takes place in that show, it kind of makes sense because it's a show about traveling and getting a wider view on, on well, I can't really say the world because there's more than one world. The universe but, and time Yeah, the universe. Itself. Yeah, and just, And never you know, hurting people if you don't have to. Exactly. And uh, it, it doesn't make sense that, that that's kind of the message that those fans will take and, and personalize. And it's so refined and British. Yes. And yeah. the Doctor is not an action hero, but he is yeah. very heroic nonetheless. Does anyone remember Rebecca Black? Oh, yeah. God. Actually, to explain this scenario better than I ever could, here's Charlie Brooker on 10 O'Clock Live. <laughs> Thanks. Now, in its short lifespan, the social mass yabbering site Twitter has changed the way news is disseminated, the way stalkers track their prey, and the way Jason Manford relaxes in his dressing room. <laughs> it celebrated its fifth birthday this week with this uplifting promotional video in which entrepreneurs, rappers, politicians, astronauts, and arseholes celebrated <laughs> its inspiring magnificence. But Twitter isn't just for fun. In the past few weeks, it's played a central role in toppling bona fide international hate figures. Uh, President Zain al-Abidine Ben Ali, Hosni Mubarak, Muammar Gaddafi, and now Rebecca Black. <laughs> yes, Rebecca Black, a 13-year-old amateur wannabe pop star whose parents paid $2,000 for her to record this song and video called Friday, which became an online sensation thanks to its superb visuals and frighteningly profound lyrics which explore the intangible beauty of Fridays. Yes, the, uh, it is the world's first song with less than one note. Uh, it actually sounds like a wasp trapped inside a polystyrene cup rasping the words, Friday, Friday, gotta get down on Friday forever. Before long, 40 million people saw it, and hundreds and thousands, hundreds and thousands of them were so moved, they flocked to Twitter to complain to 13-year-old Rebecca directly, calling her a whore, urging her to commit, not funny, urging her to commit suicide, and genuinely participate in the single biggest act of bullying in world history. A startling number of the most vicious messages seem to come from angry Justin Bieber fans, people, <laughs> people who actually enjoy listening to the dickless mewlings of this quasi-sentient <laughs> thing. Just to be clear, a Justin Bieber fan moaning about a banal pop song is like someone gargling a mouthful of skunk piss complaining that the dog's blown off in the corner. <laughs> anyway, this high-tech hate mob did affect Rebecca as an, illuminating, uh, as an illuminating interview on Good Morning America made clear. What's the meanest thing you've read that maybe hurt you the most? I hope you cut yourself and I hope you get an eating disorder so you'll look pretty and I hope you go cut and die. When I first saw all these nasty comments, I did cry. I felt like this was my fault and I shouldn't have done this and this is all because of me. I see, genuinely upsetting stuff. It's, it's impossible not to feel sorry for her there. Still quite an annoying voice, though. <laughs> but to address the members of the Rebecca Black hate mob directly for a moment, uh, dear imbeciles, thanks to your hard work, 
Rebecca Black, who you dismissed as a hopeless wannabe, is now a bona fide megastar. Look, here she is on a brilliant edition of The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, just like you'll never be. See, she's famous. Perhaps you'd like a picture of that image to hang on your wall, like this. So you can look at it every morning before going to work in the shitty mega-chain burger outfit you'll be trapped in forever, selling Happy Meals with Rebecca Black's face on them, like this. And as you pass these to customers who accurately look at you like you're nothing, you'll hear Rebecca Black's song looping on the in-store Muzak system while you slave away behind the counter five days a week from Monday through to Friday. Friday. You Friday, because that's the day you mop the fucking floor. vanity project she's just some girl she doesn't deserve this shit she has to drop she had to drop out of her high school seriously because of all the bullying that she got she had to she she did i think she was 16 when Mm. that came out something around there like she was in the middle of high school and she had to drop out and just continue homeschooling until she went to college i think it did however shoot her into the stratosphere and actually at that for that brief window of time that gave her her 15 minutes yeah yeah because they made such a fuss. If they'd just gone, I can't even listen to this, it's awful, and then just maybe sent it to a friend and said, this is the worst thing ever, and then left it at that, that would have left her in the in obscurity. But they made her a star. Yep. She became a symbol. Yeah. She is, had the highest amount of views on YouTube at one point. It, and you become something else entirely. <laughs> well, that, well, Mr. Wayne. That's what a lot of the, the, the cyber bullying of quote unquote viral celebrities seems to be is that, you know, these people didn't know Rebecca Black. They probably didn't even give a shit about the song, but she reminded them of other, you know, irritating rich girls with vanity projects whose parents might buy them a record deal or something that they'd known in their own life. And they decided, well, I couldn't take it out on her in real life, but I can take it out on this. Yeah. That's what a lot, that's, that's where Anita Sarkeesian I think lives too. She's every, you know, woman or their mum, whoever said anything bad about video games, you know, they, they couldn't, you know, take a swipe at them, but they can sure do it to her. I loved what you said about Justin Bieber being perfectly pitched to be just right for the, uh, you know, teeny bopper fangirls who scream whenever someone like Justin Bieber comes on stage, uh, to be just right to get their attention and to also be just the right pitch to get the attention of everyone who hates that kind of music and keeps talking about them. That was my immediate assessment of, you know, being, having really looked at him for the first time mm. watching these videos because I don't care about this kid. Mm. You know, so I, I look, I was like, okay, who is this guy? And then I, looked at, I said, oh wow, this guy's agent is like, wh- whoever is the handler on this kid is doing a spectacular job. Same as Fred. That was very well pitched in, in a way to make that annoying little git massively popular uh, because he was so annoying to so many people. Right, um, so which furious fan... Hang on, whoa, whoa, back the fuck up. We almost moved on there without talking about Anita Sarkeesian and Feminist Frequency. I've not talked about this on Gonzo before, and I think it's about time we talked about Anita Sarkeesian and Feminist Frequency, because the reactions to uh, that series of videos made me ashamed to be the same species. Yeah. Yeah. Who wants to go first on this one? Can I? I I've got... Lily, go. <laughs> so, obviously, she did not deserve 
the backlash that she got. Like that's that's ridiculous. And like, well, I don't think anybody like, deserves rape threats. Yeah, especially no, not stacked that's, on top of each other like the yeah. greatest stack of pancakes in the entire world nobody, made of shit and poison. <laughs> Sorry, Karen. Nobody, nobody deserves that um, at all. And it's it's crazy because like like Rebecca Black, you know, she got most of her popularity from the backlash that she got. And she made exponentially more, far more money, like $160,000 versus, I think, was she just like a couple of thousand she was trying to make originally? Like six grand, right? Yeah. But they drew immense amounts of attention to her. People who didn't give a toss about her cause at all were giving her sympathy money. Well, yeah. what you don't understand, Alex, is that was the plan all along. She's actually <laughs> a Machiavellian schemer. She made us feel like total douchebags. That's she's exactly st- what I was about to say. Like the st- people accuse her of her of her uh, exploiting her her abuse, but she didn't have to do a goddamn thing. You know, her her abusers did that. They gave her all the attention that she needed. Um, Jim Quisition had a really good episode about this that I sent you the the monster that we created episode. Um, Actually, because he did this bit really, really well. Let's play Anita Sarkeesian, the monster gamers created. So this is Jim Sterling, reviews editor for Destructoid.com, better known as Jimquisition. I'd never heard of Anita Sarkeesian until a scant few months ago. She existed, she was even fairly prominent in her own little circle, I'd imagine. But compared to the vastness of the internet, who was Anita, really? Nobody that important to gamers. Now, now she's everywhere. Now you can't go more than a day or two without reading her name, without hearing about her Tropes vs. Women in Games Kickstarter project and the upcoming video series she's producing. And ironically, she's become the hottest video game talking point of the moment, specifically because some people wanted to shut her up. Let's face facts, ladies and gentlemen. Until she was hit with an onslaught of rape threats, death threats, and gendered racist slurs, Anita was just another Kickstarter user, trying to raise funds for what was, in all honesty, a not altogether spectacular project. I hadn't heard of her project. Most people I know hadn't heard of it. But because some gamers stumbled upon it and took offence, now everybody's heard of it. The attempt to threaten her into silence has, ironically, made her one of the most heard voices in the gaming media right now. She's been accused of milking her harassment and attacks for publicity, but the gleeful irony of these criticisms is that they ignore the root of the problem, the fact that there were harassment and attacks for her to milk for publicity. If she didn't have a metric shit ton of hateful comments, spiteful Wikipedia addicts, and anti-Semitic slurs to work with, she wouldn't have been able to use them to get a leg up for her project. It's all very well for the trolls to claim they've been used and exploited, but whose fault is that? Who was happily complicit in their own exploitation? Who gave Anita all the ingredients she needed to brew her own shitstorm in a mug without the harassment and threats I dare say Anita's project would have come and gone even if it had gotten funding what's the worst that would have happened to you she'd have produced her series her existing audience would have watched it likely agreed with her and then nothing nothing We wouldn't be talking about it right now. The woman you chose to make your mortal enemy would still be producing videos in her own little sector of the net, and video games would just be video gaming like usual. Even sillier is the fact that every time her name has come up in the past few weeks, it's because somebody who doesn't like her brought her up again. I keep getting linked to little editorials and videos exposing Anita Sarkeesian as this awful person. There was that game created allowing users to punch her in the face, and they're all coming from people who want her discredited and gone. Without those people slamming her and keep putting her in the public eye, she would have been gone. At least gone from the more public gamer spectacle. 
there's a bit of a war going on right now between those who want gender issues taken more seriously in gaming and those who are upset because they considered gaming a safe male space and are upset that them damn feminists are ruining everything. But again, I ask, what are they ruining exactly? What are a few debates about sexism going to ruin? Are they going to take away your dead or alive beach volleyball massive tit parade? Would that be a loss, even if they did? Which they won't, because so long as the market exists, publishers won't change shit. The worst that will happen is we'll have some interesting discussions, and some minds might be swayed. And if you don't want to be part of that debate, you know you don't have to be. It's easy to enjoy video games without worrying about gender issues. No, no, it really fucking is. But again, the trolls who want this all to stop are scoring a massive own goal. Because every time it does come up, they go on the warpath, harassment and threats happen, and then everybody in the world starts talking about it again. The sad thing is, there are interesting discussions we could be having from this. Hell, as far as Anita goes, there are some solid criticisms you can level at her work. I'm not 100% on her side, you know. She's not perfect by a long shot, and her video series seems already to be a little off-base with some of the examples she's named as targets. But we can't talk about that anymore, because the debate's not about whether she's right or wrong. The debate was invalidated when people decided to try and ruin her life en masse. The chance to debate her on merit was lost once people started threatening to rape her. Now it's hard to debate her points without people thinking you hate her because she's a woman, and that's a direct result of her being hated by so many for being a woman. A few people are now trying to retroactively justify the assault on her by accusing her of scamming and exploitation, but it's too late for that. If you'd have just let her make her fucking video in peace and rein in your knee-jerk viciousness, you might have been able to debate her on an intellectual playing field. Hell, if her videos do turn out to be incorrect, you could have just let her hang by her own batard, or you could have simply ignored the videos and realised nothing of value was lost. But instead, you attacked her on the sheer mention of her intentions, turned the entire debate into a thesis on how misogynistic gamers are, and demolished any chance you had of having a rational, sensible debate with Anita and truly testing the courage of her convictions, which is something I would have liked to have seen. And this keeps happening. This is what happens whenever someone has a problem with a woman working in video games. She gets attacked based on the fact that she is a woman, and then the debate shifts into sexism. And it's your fault, the ones who apparently hate this debate. You're the ones turning it into a gender war, because you have to go for the jugular every single time and make things personal and vicious. And when it starts, you can't stop, and thus you continue to fix the spotlight on the issue and provide fame and exposure to the person you wish would go away. Anita doesn't even have a first video out, but because of the folks who wanted her to go away, she's got more publicity for her debut than she could have dreamed of. And you can blame the press for being complicit in this, but what are the press mostly reporting on? Her attacks! Attacks they wouldn't be able to report on if they'd have just stopped. Anita Sarkeesian is your Frankenstein's monster. You created her, and now you can't stop her. And the thing is that I actually, I really want her show to be good, and the thing is that that's really upsetting to me most of all is that we almost can never have a conversation about her show just critiquing it and giving it constructive feedback because it always turns into a conversation about gender issues and gender wars where I just want to try and help her make her show better because it is a really important topic and it really does deserve to be good. And it makes me really nervous that it's not, you can't give it the constructive feedback because there's such I, bigger things at stake on this one. Yeah, and and I think what 
just drives me nuts is, you know, I get really nervous because she's become this voice of the female gamer, and I don't want that to be the case if I don't feel comfortable with the way that she's going about it. Mm. Especially as a woman. So Anissa Sarkeesian does not speak for all of us. Exactly, but unfortunately, because of the popularity that she's got from her abusers, that's kind of the reputation that she's gained. And that makes me really uncomfortable. And I, I just... I think if you're going to be talking to that many people, you need to be responsible with how you talk to them. And you need to be open. And she can't even have conversations anymore because because of the abuse, she had to shut down her comments. Yeah. And that... So people basically reposting her videos just so that they could comment on them. Yeah. And the thing is, and it's a shame because I know we use our comment section as a place to have conversations and be constructive. And that's really important because I know James absolutely will look through every single one and take everyone into account and really try and figure out and do his research. Um, she can't do that. To, and it's unfortunate because there are people out there who do want to say important things, but then get completely flooded with the crap and they're never heard. And she can never properly, it's just like this constant cycle. She can't properly be representing ladies and games if she can't hear them. If if all I, I don't want to speak to whatever her original intent was on the whole thing, but if if the only thing that comes of this is that she basically kicked over all the anthills, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna call that sort of a win. Be if if for no other reason than because I mean this has really these are little conversations that we've always had, mm. you know in in you know on the inside it's like yeah that's kind of problematic yeah that sort of a thing. And it's kind of been dragged out into the sunlight in front of, you know, a much broader audience that has not always grown up inside the culture and reflexively defending it. And, you know, I'm a big believer that sunlight is the best disinfectant. Hmm. Yeah. No, I I, I agree with that, too. Absolutely. I do think there's more good coming out of this than bad. Yeah. I would agree. I mean, if we were... If we, like, if Extra Credits was making a similar video series, I don't think ultimately it would look terribly different. I think the script would remain largely unchanged. There are definitely ways in presentation and execution that I would, that I think she could make the, that she could, I think she could present the information better and more effectively, but ultimately if, but if she, if these videos just succeed in creating a bit more awareness and conversation about the existing issue that most people that most reasonable people would agree the issue she's trying to tackle is a real one, whether or not she, whether she's covering it well or not, then even just further awareness and discussion, I think is, I agree with Bob, a win. Well, and also the, the script that she's working from, for at least the three that exist so far, the, the practical application of these seems to be not so much talking to gamers or even, uh, you know, as, uh, as, as teaching tools for that audience. It looks, it reads to me like, like uh, almost like a shorthand class for other feminists to use to engage the gaming scene. You know, it's like summary of, you know, like the first one, you know, like the damsel in distress business, you know, is summary of examples, summary of other examples, mm-hmm. and very basic, you know, feminist theory 101 stuff applied to them. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, if in it, Again, I can't speak to what she really believes that these are for, but if the idea is to create like a, like a toolkit for other, you know, feminist theory to start approaching this medium, I welcome that because we could certainly use it. 
regarding Sarkeesian, um, the actual responses have, have been compared with uh, that of the Taliban. The, this Again, I keep going back to this thing again. And this is now what I have ended up lumping too many people into, which is unfair, uh, with the internet boy Taliban. The sensibility appears to be the way things are are the way things should be. Any change or deviation from that, any suggestion that we need to change or deviate from that must be met with very forceful refusal and abuse. I can't understand that mentality. How do we move forward as a species if we have to keep things the same? This is like the, the first rule of thermodynamics, for Christ's sake. Was it the third rule of thermodynamics? In a closed system, all things tend towards entropy? Call it what it is. Gaming, is, g- gaming culture is really conservative. Yeah. yeah. Christ, yeah. And I don't just mean for a change, you know, that uh, it's it's American right wing. I mean, you know, the popularity of Call of Duty says, yes, gaming is also very American right wing. But it's very conservative in that it likes things the way they are right now. Like, we're good. This is good. Just in general. Don't change the way the controllers work. Don't change the way the delivery system works. If you make a controller that is not, you know, two analog sticks, four action buttons, you know, two triggers, God help you. You know, don't change the interface. Um, we are either want we either want things to be just very good as they are right now. This is fine, or we want them to be like they were in the '80s, which was even better. And you know, the future, something else, something different, something new. We don't want to hear about it. And that is the essence of a conservative culture. Now is good. Then was better. The unknown is bad. Let's not change it. Right. Second law of thermodynamics. An isolated physical system, if not already in its own internal state of thermodynamic equilibrium, spontaneously evolves towards it. In an isolated physical system, there is a tendency towards spatial homogeneity. In particular, where an isolated physical system reaches its own internal state of thermodynamic equilibrium. So what it basically means is... (laughs) Why am I pursuing this path? What it boils down to is if you try and keep things the same all the time, it rots. Yeah. Yep. It decays. You, the, this is railing against cycles. This is railing against the circle of life. Fuck it, if you're not going to listen to me, listen to Mufasa. <laughs> <laughs> the, hmm. tr- we've Money. got a long history in our culture of being of feeling like we needed to be somewhat protective of games especially and some of it like with reason there were there were many there's many times where games have been demonized which still i mean just like less than a week ago we're seeing news reports of like games definitely getting fingers pointed at them for violent acts happening uh, there's so there's i expect that some there's some element at play of we have developed a defense system when we yep. feel that this hobby is under attack and but now we've lost sense of who the target is and anytime we feel that anything about what the status quo of games is gets called into question we immediately set that defense system to work mm. and uh, and it overcompensates wildly absolutely it's disproportionate yeah, to, to all instances that it is defending against 
Okay, um, we'll come back to Sarkeesian because um, the next one uh, I'm going to ask is which Furious fan reactions have actually managed to change the work itself retroactively or otherwise? Now, the first one I'm going to mention is the Xbox One. Mm. This is a big one, and I haven't really discussed it on this show either. What Microsoft were attempting to lay down uh, pre-E3 was a change to the system, uh, and fans reacted very negatively. Didn't Microsoft followed Sony, so Sony hadn't actually laid down any of this. Microsoft basically said, right, you've got to ch- uh, check in every day with us. There will be no uh, pre-owned games. Was the other one that basically drove everyone nuts? The Kinect camera? Oh, yeah. Connect so always on. Um, now, all three of those, short-term and on a personal level, I really didn't like. But I do understand, on a broader scope, that had Microsoft maintained that and had Sony matched it, it would be transformative onto an already, like, beyond stagnation previous generation. The 360 and the PS3 were, have been bogged down by various issues, which would be, if not fixed, addressed by what Microsoft were attempting to put into place. We reacted, we said no, Sony turned up, and not only said we're not doing that, but they gut-punched Microsoft, flicked them in the bollocks, and went, eh, we're going to make a funny little video about it. And I I love them for it, because it's so brassy to be able to do it. But at the same time, they're working for the side that want to keep things the same. Mm. And long-term... It's going to pull back any sense of change. Now, ultimately, I'm not sure if what Microsoft was suggesting with this Kinect camera thing would have been a good change. Certainly, the the idea of ruling out uh, all pre-owned games is a move towards all digital. So it may not have had good repercussions, but it's it's change that we need to affect... Uh, and it's so hard I mean, for me to say this because they changed Sprite and now Sprite, my favorite fucking drink in the world, sucks and I can't drink it anymore. They took out sugar out. It's, uh, they, 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 uh, the mix of sugars and sweeteners, uh, they changed the actual ratio so that it is almost no, it, it's just like, uh, high fructose corn syrup anyway. They've changed it to various artificial sweeteners so it has a horrible aftertaste. I don't know about this in, in America, but in the UK, I now can't drink Sprite. I have to drink 7up instead. But Sprite is an art. Um, it's a consumption. It, it is a product. It's something to be consumed. And we're treating games as just a product. The infrastructure of the game marketplace is a living thing that has been slowly transforming over the past uh, two generations, really, like to be something that it's completely different now, thanks to online, than it was when the PlayStation 1 was out. Immeasurably different. Um, But holding back on this means that at the end of this current generation that we're just going into, it's possible that a lot of those changes that would have occurred now won't or will take a lot longer to happen. Bob, go. Sorry. I don't know. Um, a minute ago, I, I called video games conservative, and and this at least gives me a little opportunity to, to mention that I don't. The Xbox One gives me this opportunity, I should say, that uh, I don't necessarily mean that as an automatically bad thing that games are conservative. That's but um, William F. Buckley, who's considered the, uh, the 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 intellectual forefather of modern conservatism, at least in the United States, uh, he wouldn't be recognized as such today. But who would? Uh, said that the purpose, described the purpose of conservative philosophy is to stand astride the path of history and say stop. Yeah. 
and what he meant by that was not stagnation, but rather don't go off the cliff, you know, hold on, think about what you're doing before you do it. And that is, in at least in my view, that is the game community doing the right thing in regards to the Xbox One. Because all these changes Microsoft is talking about, you know, always online, having a camera running all the time, having games have to check in and whatnot, let's not kid ourselves, that's where all digital entertainment is going within the next, you know, couple of decades. That's yeah. what it's going to be. That's where Netflix is going to be. That's what TV is going to be. That's what everything's going to be. It's not ready yet. And they were jumping the gun, yeah. in my estimation, Microsoft was, in trying to get to this thing because it would be profitable for them in the short term. But that was going to screw over lower income gamers. Yeah. It was going to, and, and people always jump in on that and say, well, if they're lower income, they shouldn't be playing video games anyway. You know what? Fuck you. <laughs> I have a lot of friends who would be considered lower income people and whatnot. Sometimes if you're poor as hell, you know, sometimes having an Xbox might be the only joy in your life. So fuck off with the, you know, oh, if, if, if they're on food stamps, they shouldn't have video games anyway. Screw you. But <clears throat> sorry. That's, I'm also not suggesting that Microsoft are in any way, A, altruistic, or B, interested in the idea of change for the sake of moving forwards. Ultimately, they uh, had various business plans set up to slowly phase out hard copy. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, the ultimately, it was self-interested. And but this is the way we're going to be going. But you're you're right. Being cautious about moving forwards like that and not allowing them to dictate that to us. If we do have a say in it, and we did react to that. That makes a statement about what we want. But it does mean, in the long run, that this step forward is going to be held back. But then again, look at the PSP Go. Look at how much impact that had. And that didn't work. Pull out. We'll just try something different completely. Again. It may be our it may be our ultimate destination, but those first steps are yeah. important in defining the precedent for what that shape that's going to take. Yeah. And I think like where whereas I'm very I'm fine with the ultimate direction of like where Microsoft's wanting to steer things and I'm like quite and I even look forward to a lot of elements of that of that future. I think the uh Seeing those first steps they were taking were a very consumer unfriendly, a very like a kind of a wrong headed way to approach that transition. I felt so, even though I'm looking forward to that transition someday, that was definitely not the shape I wanted to see it take. So I think that I, it's hard to tell without without seeing the future here. But I feel like that was a bit of a win. Well, Here's the thing, though. Whatever, whoever makes that step, it has to be unified because it, all it takes is for the other, uh, the the competitors to say, "Oh, we're not making that step," and everyone will immediately flock to them. This sudden turnaround on Microsoft, and after all these years of fuck Sony, and then suddenly Xbox becomes the bogeyman. And I still don't want. I, yeah, I'm I'm weighing it up still. At the moment, but I'm much more leaning towards the PS4. It's, just because they impressed the hell out of me during E3 with their adherence to indie and, and their, their their attitude towards the broader gaming market rather than just what appeared to be AAA, which is what Microsoft were heading towards. And well, I don't want to start be, a huge debate here, but yeah. No, no, well, it has to be – you're right. Like, It has to be unified or it has to be incredibly appealing to the consumer. Yeah. Like Steam, like they have Steam to is already doing a lot of what Xbox, what Microsoft wants the Xbox One to do. They're trying to move toward a much more Steam-like yeah. system. But Steam offers an incredible amount of value to the player that makes it appealing to give up lots of things like being able to physically trade things. It, it offers a lot of convenience and consumer friendliness, which the Xbox One was not providing. It was offering a lot of things that were going to help Microsoft yeah. and game makers. But to the consumer, it was just almost... It was just losses all around. So 
I think like if they offered something that was as appealing as what Steam provides, then I think even if Sony and other game makers said that no, we're staying where right where we are, a lot of people would be really attracted to that to such a consumer friendly yeah. thing. But you won't be able to trade games, but look at our projections for basically being able to bring down the prices of games. Look at Steam. Yeah. This is what we're trying to do. You have to work with us here on this. If, yeah, if that was actually their intention. At the moment, I feel like it's not their intention. They want to go like, like, have you seen what games on demand cost when they, if they uh, come up fairly close to the time of, uh, of like on disc games? They're, they're 10, 15 pounds more than if you just bought them in the store. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I, mean, I think I think it's what Microsoft was trying to do. What I was just saying, but Microsoft having messaging problems is nothing new. Yeah. So yeah. I think yeah. they just kind of flubbed it for themselves. Also, I mean, when I first saw what they were announcing with the getting rid of used games. I remember I was I was on board with that, but that was because, you know, I'm working for games, and I understand what used games do to the industry at large and how much money they actually cost studios. And, uh, and I just, I see it as, like, you know, the developers not getting their fair share of the work they did. And, um, and I think that's why I was on top of the, like, I was pro getting rid of used games, and but I also understand why a consumer would not want that. Well, it's a death toll for many people with a low... Like me, for example. Yeah. I have zero budget on a monthly basis. Grand Theft Auto is the first new game I bought this year that wasn't digital. Yeah, like, and I, I'm totally understanding of that, too. I'm not saying that people don't deserve to buy games. But, like, yeah. like what Bob said, you know, like... You, oh, poor people shouldn't buy games. No, fuck that. That's that's not what I'm saying. But yeah. I have really responded well to the idea of uh, of uh, building a digital library, and you know, of everyone who's been using Steam for years has got a head start on me anyway. This is not new. It was going to be decisions that would hurt me short term, and I wouldn't be happy about them. Mm-hmm. But it requires a great degree of self control and almost selflessness to be able to look at the bigger picture and go, "But this is ultimately where we're heading." Yeah, it's just the transitional period is always going to be hellhole. Yeah, yeah. The, the way you can get through free shit. Just give people free stuff. They will. Yeah. <laughs> the amount of, of of love Sony generated going from uh, having no paid service at all and everyone thinking they were shit to going to PSN Plus and giving people free games on a monthly basis and suddenly they are the new gods. Yeah. Well, just pretend to care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's look at like right right now. Sony gets to be the good guy yeah. because they because they jumped on things and realized that they could put out a funny video and pretend like they were on everybody's side. If Sony thought they could get away with what Microsoft was doing, they would have done it. Yeah. And so would Nintendo. And so would anyone else. The these are they're, they're corporate entities. They're not your best friend. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you had a Mario plushie when you were a kid. They don't care about you. Once again, but, your Taliban-like levels of fanatical brand loyalty are unwarranted. But if they can be made to pretend like they care about you, then you can maybe get something out of it. Yeah. And that's why that's why I'd call the Xbox One thing, even if it got a little hyperbolic. I was just glad to finally see gamers get mad about something that was at least sort of on behalf of other people. Yeah. You know, instead of just instead of just saying, you know, well, I've got plenty of money and I can afford, you know, all of this right there. To to see them actually get upset about consumer rights instead of saying, well, just suck it up and uh, you know play something you can afford was a sort of almost positive step forward for us. Yeah. 
It was like, good boy, you can have a treat. <laughs> it, it is a Shades of Grey situation, though. There are there are positive and negative outcomes from the whole um, Microsoft suddenly going back on it because it's it's set a precedent, and it, it now means that if, effectively, from now on, Sony and Microsoft, if they do something unpopular that can be reversed, we can bully them into a reversal. Yeah. Well, we we'll can, see what happens the first time they say no. We'll see. <laughs> okay. Um, now, the Green Lantern. <laughs> Do you remember this one, Bob? Oh, yeah. This is Hal's evil, hateful army? Uh, uh, Hal, yep, yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, Hal's Emerald, Emerald, Emerald Action Team. Action Team. Sorry, originally Attack Team, but then that yep. sounded too aggressive. So they said, no, we're not aggressive. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you read up on these guys, they, they did various things for, for charity as well to uh, generate goodwill, and as did the Take Back Mass Effect 3 uh, folks. They're like, you know, we, we d- donated uh, money to uh, children for, for games. We made all these... <laughs> the, the folks at Mass Effect, uh, Take Back Mass Effect had commissioned a whole bunch of cupcakes in red, green, and blue sent to the Bioware offices to sort of illustrate, hey, these are your choices, and inside... They were just vanilla cupcakes, and they were all exactly the same. And they were making a point, and that's hilarious if expensive as a joke. And uh, Mass Effect folks sent, gave them away to charity. Um, but ultimately, d- doing nice things while you're being immensely self-entitled, selfish, and uh, demanding doesn't necessarily balance out the equation. I'll steal a line from, uh, oh God, I forget who this was. Someone on Twitter had referred to uh, people using charities as carbon credits for bad behavior. Nice. Yeah. It's almost aggressively nice. Mm. It's like a, a friend of yours who uh, has done something terrible and then buys you a particularly gaudy gift you didn't actually necessarily want or ask for. Uh, sort of as a sorry, but because they're rich, that's the only way they know how to communicate. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the, the Green Lantern Hal's Emerald Action Team, uh, they basically demanded Hal Jordan come back and that all of his wrongs be forgotten and rewritten. And then, uh, you know, within merely 10 years, it actually happened. And uh, if you look at actual comic history, that would have been an inevitability. It was going to happen anyway. Mm. Look at things from a grander scheme. No. Not one Silver Age superhero stays dead or stays evil or stays written out of comics. None of them, because they're all money spinners. The the worry, obviously, with Green Lantern was that because you could switch them for another Green Lantern, unlike, say, Superman, (laughs) they tried it, though, didn't they? There would never be a Hal Jordan coming back, and I can sort of understand that, but at the same time, it's fucking comics, this is just following the death and sudden return of Superman that killed death in comics. It's going to happen. And now that they can claim, well, we got our way, we, you know, it, it, it actually, you know, it was Hal's Emerald Action Team that, that got this done, not just that Jeff Johns had always had a problem with this, uh, these turn of events anyway, or that it was just plain shit writing in the first place. And that was wild because that was analog. Like that was pre the the Hal's Emerald Action Team thing was pre-internet. Yeah, you know they did that with actual letter like that took real work. Yeah, you weren't just you were just clicking the petition button. That was you know people were writing letters to DC, actual handwritten, hand typed letters. Like today, that would be the equivalent of shooting it over on an arrow or a carrier. <laughs> 
Fly, swift wind, tell them the truth. <laughs> it must be known. How must be brought back and exonerated. But oh, again, was... it's, it's, it's misery again. It's, look, we don't like what happened here. Rewrite it. Now, if an artist decides to do that anyway, it'll be kind of cheap, kind of either way. But then again, it's this is not one artist over time either. There have been dozens of writers on Green Lantern over the years. And what one Green Lantern writer does versus what another Green Lantern writer does a decade later pretty much have no real bearing on each other. This is not one artist going across the across the board. It's not like Jeff Johns wrote that original story and then reversed it. I expect. I mean, I don't follow comics. Very, I don't follow comics at all, really. But I expect the fan backlash and then like uh, Marvel or DC backstep and re and like altering <laughs> altering canon happens somewhat frequently. At least it sounds like it does. Hmm. Well, more like more some, so now. I suppose so. Yeah. Because well, now they know that they can monetize it. Like the, uh, yeah. the Hal's Emerald action team thing was a legitimate people did not see it coming. It wasn't teased. You know, it wasn't like there was like now there would be months and months of build up as, you know, get ready. This is the end of an era. Prepare to buy your new number one issue. You know, they, they left no indication in the build up to Green Lantern. I mean, it was getting dark. But the idea that they were going to turn Hal evil, kill him off, and make another guy Green Lantern was came completely out of left field yeah. for a lot of fans and readers at that time because, you know, not much of an internet then. You know, there was like Usenet and that sort of thing. You know, it wasn't like Batman or Superman, so the news wasn't covering it. When Superman died, like CNN covered it. Yeah, you know, it was like, like John like Craven's news round for the yeah. British people out there. Well, so as though there was a real Superman who was going to die. And uh, so this really did come out. It shocked people. And it all, but it also got them buying Green Lantern and got them interested again. So now when characters die in comics, you know, okay, yes, this person is dying. It's because they're setting up an event. He'll be gone for two years. So buy all these soon to be collector's issues where another guy is Captain America. And then eventually he'll be back and the cycle can repeat. So now it's like a monthly thing. Yeah. Mm. <sighs> See, I thought after uh, reading um, uh, Blackest Night, that was Jeff Johns saying, right, from now on, no one's dying in DC unless it's for real. That was supposed to be. <laughs> that, that, that was supposed to be the end, but uh, then they reset the universe and then reset it again. And I, I don't think they've reset it again yet, but we're on, we're on the second entirely new DC universe in about five years. So, Jesus. so that's a thing. Okay. Um, and the- seeing creators at any time, like, change in re- reaction to a backlash always like unsettles me but even if i don't care about the franchise in question like i remember when infamous 2 was revealed like in the first e3 initial trailer came out and the main character had a different hair design he looked a lot more uh nathan drake-ish he had he, he had hair for one he had a different costume look and then there was a huge fan backlash, surprisingly, over that. And then, in future, tra- have and, fu- and then in future trailers, from then on, he was back to basically looking like he looked before. Which, in addition to being like, a, I don't care about the franchise. And really, what that mostly reveals is that there are fans who actually do deeply care about Infamous, which was surprise enough. But it all still makes me mad. Like I get angry seeing like someone they had someone had an artistic idea a risk or like they wanted to develop this character. They wanted to try some new look or take things in a new direction, but 
because people are scared of change or because it is different then that then we're never going to see that it made me it's what made me so happy that ninja theory didn't back down on the devil may cry on the thing, devil yeah. may cry thing and really think it's just a palette swapped out his hair to make it white easily they could have and i guess when you goes into like demon mode or whatever his hair is white but that could easily have been something they were intending all along yeah. the little jab at the very beginning of the game saying the white hair was stupid probably wasn't necessary but nice. all the same like i'm glad they stuck to it because i just hate watching it happen but if when obviously mass effect is the big most prominent retroactively changed thing we can thing i can think of in games and honestly if that was something it's impossible to tell if that's what something that bioware wanted to do that the people inside bioware thought this was kind of rushed we weren't really sure about this we didn't have the time or the budget to really flesh this out into what we kind of one intended for this to be and wanted a do-over and could use the fan backlash as kind of extra bargaining chips to get the extra funds raised to make that happen then I'd have been fine with that. Like, if they thought they could do better and it was coming from their own, like, their own drive to create what they wanted it to be, then that's fine. I'm totally fine with that. But it's impossible to tell, really, if it's just that or if it is just, this is a huge outcry, let's try to let's try to placate people. From what I've read, they didn't... They wanted to keep the ending the way it was. Because I, I mentioned this last week, they... They stress a lot on how they wanted to keep the ending open so that people can interpret their own uh, their own stories, and that just didn't didn't take, I guess. Right. Um, fair, fair enough. Yeah. And I've never even decided. Like, I still don't know for sure how I feel about the Mass Effect ending. Like, I've st- I still go back and forth on it. I don't love it, but I don't necessarily hate it either. But either way, I would much rather have stick with that than get a different ending that they didn't yeah. like, the as, issue, as an artist that makes me feel a little bit sick the issue is ultimately um, this was actually my next question but we'll we'll just jump to it and then we'll jump back because there's a few more that uh, regarding uh, things that have changed the work or affected the work um, the issue is how, what responsibility did, did Bioware DC Comics and Microsoft hold in this scenario because they on various levels were perceived as placating their audience Microsoft just proved that we can shout loud enough and get them to change their business plan, or at least what they had originally laid down, to make it as close to being as in line with the Sony machine as possible, to the point where right now the only thing between those machines are the console exclusives and whether or not you got Kinect. And DC Comics, obviously, whether Hal was coming back or not, the fact that there had been so much demand for him to come back... Similarly with Mass Effect, the fact that there had been so much demand for a new ending, it didn't matter whether they made the executive decision to uh, bring Hal back or to give us a new ending. It appears to be them acquiescing to bullying. And it appears to be them saying, oh, poor baby, you wanted that candy bar and you're crying? Let me give you that candy bar. That is the worst way to treat a spoiled child. Yeah, I, I believed I this would, way before being a father. I was like, there is one thing that I will not do, and that's when my kid's crying in a supermarket because she wants to eat a blah, 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 is buy her that blah, blah, blah. I would like to think that the responsibility, I'm thinking more in terms of a, a Bioware situation, I would hope the responsibility would be on keeping the integrity of the original work the same, just sticking with the integrity of whatever that work was trying to say. 
but I don't know anymore because because um, I changed it. And I do. I was saying last week that a lot of this is determined just by business as well. Um, so Microsoft, obviously, I think their first responsibility for them is make money. I don't know if they feel responsible for. I don't know. I. I want to say that they don't feel responsible for consumers, but I guess if it's going to affect their money, then they do. With, with Microsoft, we're talking, we're talking about a product that we are literally talking about a product that they are creating, which we like. They treating it like a product doesn't. I, I don't like. I don't love the precedent set of us being able to shout loud enough that we can veto any decision made. But it, it is a device like which they are trying to sell to consumers. In the case of DC and Bioware, though, where this is an actual artistic choice or artistic yeah. statement, and particularly with games, when for so long we've been wanting to see games taken more seriously and treated more respectfully as an art form, to then have fans wheel around and demand that games be treated like pro- like a product when the artistic approach doesn't suit our tastes, and then to have that demand placated sets a really unfortunate precedent that I really don't like and I would really hope that in the future that developers and publishers would stick to their guns on this kind of issue because art can't survive in an environment where the audience can take full control from the creator at any point. Because mm. then we get things like Twilight. Well, technically we get things like Fifty Shades of Grey. Fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm thinking of like stuff that's just kind of mass-produced just for filling somebody's want. Um, but I think what's actually kind of interesting um, or I think the difference between treating stuff like art or treating it like a product is the Xbox is a product in which we get art from. But we have games that go on that and then that's how we consume our art. Um, and I think what, uh, what Microsoft has to take into account is you know how long that will last as far as a console cycle goes. Um, because the, it, the Xbox is, is a long-term investment in comparison to Mass Effect or comics that you buy. So I don't know. You can spend quite a lot of money on DC crossovers. No, no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm talking... Like, yeah, you can spend a lot of money on, on games and, and comics, but the actual system that you are buying in which to consume these things... Mm. You know what I mean? Like it's 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 more of a it has to be a smarter investment because that that is the umbrella of how you can ingest things over time. Philosophically, I sort of default always to the idea that the creator is first. The person who came up with this, thought this up, you know, is writing the story, running the show, whatever is. You know, at the end of the day, they have the right to do so. Lucas can re-edit Star Wars. Bioware can end Mass Effect. However, the hell they want. But at the same time, if you are going to have these kind of, you know, relationships, you know, with fans and creators or whatnot, I think that when that back and forth works and when you have, you know, creators listening to their fans and sometimes you get a change that's positive, it can help. Uh, Gail Simone is back on uh, Batgirl mm. because fans complained. Yeah. It's, you know, the good can come with it. Uh, you know, certain change, like, uh, you know, like the, the Hal Jordan coming back thing, you know, is sort of like a prime example of whiny fanboys getting their way. This is true. 
it's also that same, you know, level of blowback has been harnessed to do things that I would call positive steps, like fixing the horrible Stephanie Brown story. Um, that's the most prominent one that I can think of so far, but things like that. The, you know, speaking of Green Lantern, uh, the women in refrigerators concept, you know, we have that word because mm. of people, you know, started by Gail Simone at first. I, I think, she, was she the one that started up first coined the term? Yes, it was Gail Simone. Right, she so really was, objected to that. Right. And, you know, getting onto that and, you know, still you have, you know, people complaining about, you know, these, uh, these works, but sometimes it gets harnessed to do good in, in that respect. I think, uh, Women in Refrigerators, just as a turn of phrase that gets across the board comic book publishers to think a little bit before they brutalize one of their female characters just because, is probably a good thing. It's I don't know that you can really put a bow on it and say that this is a good thing or this is a bad thing because it has positive applications, even if I default to the creator should mm. still have final say over their own stuff just in terms of fairness. If you make it, you can, you can, it should be your thing, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to point out when someone does terrible work. You know, I will defend Frank Miller's right to make his horrible Batman books, you know, uh, however he wants them, but they're horrible. <laughs> as long as you get the right to not have to read them. But that's, exactly. the, that's the thing. A lot of the time, you don't have the right to say anything about it until you buy it and read it in its entirety. Yeah. <sighs> Sometimes I mean, you can just assess something from a, a relatively superficial level, go somewhat in-depth to it, and realize, oh my god, this is rotten to the core. Yeah, I don't need to watch the entirety fine. of the Nicolas Cage, The Wicker Man, to realize that it is shit on a stick. I have watched the whole of The Wicker Man. It is worse than that. <laughs> It's a special kind of awful. The Wicker yeah. Man really is, and I I hate it because the original Wicker Man is so good, mm -hmm. and this has ruined it for people because now they're gonna know the surprise. Yeah, the bees. The you surprise know. is the bees. <laughs> it's 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 it, it's ruined the ability of that mm -hmm. original movie to have any kind of impact on people because now it's only talked about as the good version of this terrible Nicolas Cage movie. But the terrible Nicolas Cage movie is a special, unique vintage of terrible. I was trying to think about what would have happened if fans had had the ability to um, backlash uh, properly with various milestones in comic history. So, for example, the death of Gwen Stacy. Now, they did this because Peter Parker was getting too cozy with her and it looked like he might be settling down. And they didn't want to write a possibly married Spider-Man back in the 70s. Um, still don't. So they still don't know. That's the problem. That he is cursed to always be brought back to being a teenager, effectively. Um, so they killed her to, for uh, writing purposes. And mm. if everyone goes, no, bring back Gwen Stacy now, and then had to flip flop on it within a few uh, months or years, even um, it would have undone one of the most lasting tragedies in comic history. Uh, and, and the other one that I immediately thought of was, well, what about Jason Todd? And then I realized, oh no, hang on. We chose the death of Jason Todd. In that very rare instance, we were allowed to vote, and the small majority, slightly higher, voted to kill the guy. And that sort of... We kind of have to own that as fans, as a result. That was an ugly scene. <laughs> yeah, it's genuinely unpleasant to uh, read. It's even more unpleasant to actually watch if you've got... Uh, you ever seen uh, Under the Red Hood? 
love that film, but it is genuinely unpleasant to uh, to watch for that particular bit, particularly. But it has created a fantastic character uh, of uh, the older Jason Todd. Um, it's so much better than the comic. The mo- the movie really is. <laughs> I actually liked uh, Judd Winnick's original comic, but the movie's way tighter and uh, and gets the to the heart of the drop oh, very. Oh, well. the the, com- the comeback of Jason Todd was a good comic. I mean, yeah. like Death in the Family itself is. It, oh right, yeah. Well, of have, course. Have, yes. we, have, have we read this? Yeah, no, I've read Death in the Family. Yeah, okay. had to to research for the next Batman mm-hmm. drama. Well, just uh, just want to. I, I didn't want to like you know be being redundant if everyone already knows what's what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, no, no. You can probably talk about that. Most of the Gonzo listeners are, are, are sick to death of me talking about Batman, I'd imagine, but they know plenty like, have, about have it, we, yeah. the, the Death in the Family comic, it's not only, you know, okay, we're going to murder a teenager and then let teenage, and then let the audience vote with a hmm. 900 number hmm. over, over whether or not he's going to survive. That's also the series where the Joker becomes the, uh, the Iranian representative to the United Nations. Yeah. And the joke, and the, the Joker is walking around in traditional Arab dress, which is odd because Iran is Persian. And he has diplomatic immunity, so Batman can't kick yeah. the fuck out of him. Actual dialogue is like, the Iranian people and I have so much in common. Uh. Misunderstanding. Insanity. A great love of fish. It was an yeah. unfortunate time. Oof. It's an uncomfortable book to have to read. I do really like the the, the one that follows on directly after the actual death of uh, Todd, uh, because uh, Batman and Superman are standing in uh, uh, a police chief's uh, office, and basically the police uh, the chief is saying, "You do not go after the Joker, Superman. Watch him." And it's almost like Batman's like, yeah, I know you've got a job to do at this point. But that's a, a really great sort of tense scene between those two. It's isolated from the rest of the book, which is mostly really cackily written. Yeah. But that's mainly down to the fact that, yeah, I, I, I like the Kal-El and uh, Bruce uh, dynamic, mm. which Bring you've lamented back. in the past. <laughs> <laughs> Bringing it back to uh, fan voting for things, um, now I remember... Before Mass Effect did any wrong, um, they uh, Bioware let people vote which femship they wanted to use in advertising. Oh yeah, yeah. that was and, redhead. Yeah, and people voted, and then there was still a backlash on like what femship should look like, and and they were recoloring her hair and going, "This was, is femship." I was so confused, <laughs> and I mean, and that's a, that's another thing with the you know people not looking at the bigger picture of how much good this game is doing as compared to bad. You know, when you think about how much uh, how much Mass Effect has done, like, having a female protagonist that um, they used in marketing and let you choose what she looked like, also having a game that allows you to have, uh, you know, gay relationships, like, that game was really remarkable and I think people forget about all that stuff. Even just having a hard ass woman on the cover holding a gun is still yeah. a remarkable development for this industry. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's baby but steps. Like, yeah. But like ultimately like I do agree with you, Bob, there is positive that can come from like consumers having a voice is like ultimately a good thing. I think we can we obviously the natural part of the dialogue is we can kind of discuss and assess the our opinions on quality of stuff what like uh celebrate the things that are great uh dismiss and um disapprove of the things that are bad we can even and we can basically vote with our money with for how we 
like the sort of products we want to see more of in the future. And I, and I think we can genuinely actually do some good with that. But there's a lot of potential for abuse of that power as well that can actually lead to damaging the things that we're that we love so much. Yeah. And that's the main. And I think that's the main thing we're I guess discussing here. Just the uh, the actual damage we can do. To, especially to a formative medium like, or to a to a medium that's just kind of coming together like games. Mm. There's two little things that I want to talk about before we talk about some actual damage that was done, uh, genuinely or pretty much irreparable damage. Uh, one was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles thing, which is so stupid. Um, Bob, you actually talked about this on one of your videos. Again, so many of them that you're on here because uh, like there are all these subjects which you've discussed, which I just thought I'll just just stir them into one big show and get them all discussed in one go. <laughs> um, if you remember, uh, like a year and a so ago, uh, it surfaced on the internet that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, were going to just just be, was it just they were just going to be called the Ninja Turtles? It was. Uh, I, I mean, I read the script that uh, that 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 got leaked. That everyone I, read. I read a breakdown of the script. <laughs> It sounded uh, very stupid. It was bad. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, people were basically um, fixating on detail. Again, it's like with Shepard's hair. It's like with Dante's hair. It's like, you know, with the the Cole McGrath's hair. Always with the fucking hair! The the issue was that the turtles were supposed to come from another... They were aliens or something along those lines. Yeah, they were... were, The the new version of of the origin story would have been that they were from another dimension. They were from, like, a... Dimension X or something. In the, the script that they were working from... For most of the movie, they they assumed that they had the origin story we were always familiar with. And then the big third act twist was, oh, by the way, guys, you're not actually mutants. Uh, Bipedal turtles are the native race of Dimension X, and you are the chosen ones of that, and you were supermaned off to Earth so that you couldn't be destroyed, and now you have to fight Krang and Colonel Schrader. Which was the new Shredder? Nice, yes, I remember and that. It, it was Bill Fickner, people. It was. It's, it's a dog shit script. Yeah, I mean, even apart from the change, it's a dog shit script. But you know, people flipped out about that one just on the basis of the but, origin story. Yeah, this is the thing they focused on the origin and didn't say, "Look, what we've read here sounds like utter shit." Don't like, not so much go back to the drawing board. You guys need to hire some genuinely talented script writers and then just like give examples of these are really good scripts that will also create a huge amount of money because that's ultimately what the Michael Bay and his production team are trying to make a large amount of money Transformers style and I understand that I sympathize with that I think just most Turtles fans just want a film that's not going to be shit but too many of them are focusing way too much on details that it doesn't matter either way they could literally get the uh, the exact origin of the turtles, word for word, exactly perfect. And if everything else in the film is absolute shit, it doesn't matter. You'd never get a perfect version of the origin anyway, because there are like it's five or six. Things, yeah. Well, there's five or six different strains of really hardcore Ninja Turtles fans who all love one version of it and hate all the others. I love how you said, basically, you know, please don't come on with your, I was into the Mirage comics before where the uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon came out, because if they had, if everyone who claims that had been, then Eastman and Lair could have retired to their own private island, because it would have been the most successful independent comic of all goddamn time. But there are people who genuinely only like the Mirage version, mm. and there are people who really want to see... I mean, I am still bending over backwards trying to give this one a chance, because what they're making now sounds an awful lot like the uh, the 80s cartoon in live action. Yeah, which you said you wanted. 
yeah, I, I'd like to see that. I would I would settle for Bebop and Rocksteady in live action. I've never gotten to see that. It's the one closest to the public consciousness. Yeah. So, yeah, to cut a long story short, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, they listened to the fans, probably went like this, oh, for fuck's sake, had a quick meeting, looked at the original script and said, yes, this is actually shit. Let's start from scratch. And they went back to the drawing board. Now, that could ultimately we don't know yet, save us from what could have been a fucking terrible film and give us a good one. It's not likely, though, but maybe. (laughs) However, that does once again reinforce the precedent that we can dictate to the movie studios how things should and shouldn't go. Again, it's a Shades of Grey scenario, because ultimately a lot of fans can smell shit. Uh, Short of actually releasing each script before the film comes out and going, is that all right? Do you like that? There's not really a protocol for this one yet. It is uh, slowly gaining form. And uh, specifically the negotiations with movie studios thing is going to slowly evolve over the next few years and decades as communication and specifically communication with, let's face it, more important people than us starts to become more of a regular thing. One nasty, horrible little uh, scenario, and it actually uh, deserves to be back on the list where it had absolutely no bearing on the eventual product, because this was for a film that was actually already made and and was being released in the cinema. Uh, People found out that the character of Rue in The Hunger Games uh, was black, and there were some fucking nasty comments on Twitter, something along the lines of, I don't care about what happens to her now. The idea being that if she was white, that would be uh, an issue, which is a wholly soulless reaction to have. It's almost like you're opting out of the human race if you say something like that. Yeah. Yep. I, I got nothing to add to that. That's just, that's yeah. just bullshit. <laughs> There's almost no way you can defend behavior and and, and speech like that. I mean, I suppose if you just say it to a friend who's also a racist, that's just keeping it within your circle. I'm not going to carry on with this, but ultimately I think most of our communities are going to probably have their uh, opinions on this and they're mostly going to be in line with, with what I've just said. Yeah, I don't know that anyone can defend that, even even if you don't like, for whatever reason, the change of the character. I really don't think you can you, you can get behind that. That's just like the worst of it. Yeah, if if I'm being as generous as possible with whoever said it, like I can sort of see if you have an idea of who a character is in your head, and then you are presented with a that a character is completely unlike in look or action or whatever else what you expected, then you at least do don't feel that same connection to that portrayal as you do to what you have in your head. Like if but it's not like she's out, being played by Jar Jar Binks. No, exactly. But even even for me, like I know that if and when they ever make a Mass Effect film, it's probably going. And if it's about the Shepard character, they're probably going to cast it with a male, and I'm going to care less mm. because like I am attached to a female. Like, to and it will be an opportunity there, which is sort of a James Cameron style heroine. Yeah, which is a, I mean, but that's like a strictly across gender lines thing that like I still have more attachment to one than the other. So whereas I still, I, I have a hard time defending exactly the uh, whoever that was on Twitter. Like if I try really hard, I can sort of see maybe where it comes from. 
Oh, by the way, I think we discussed this when we were playing Minecraft on, with the Mass Effect uh, templates. Um, the way to actually uh, have your cake and eat it is to make Kaiden uh, the window to which you see Shepard, at least in the first movie. That way you can have your Johnny Template-style um, uh, male marine character. Maybe just rough him up a little bit, because he's a bit whiny in the original game and a bit boring. Just, you know, make, make your Channing Tatum that guy, although I'd have cast him... Um, Tom Hardy would be a great Kaiden. Uh, but you make Shepard a female and make, you know, you're looking at Commander Shepard through Tom Hardy's eyes and Ashley can be there as well. That way you satisfy all of these box ticking at once and you can then craft a, a much more uh, powerful story, not by volition of the fact that just because Shepard is a woman, but because you're already approaching it from not just the let's stick down your Johnny template and that's your main character. I would be surprised if they ended up, if they actually ended up doing Mass Effect as a movie. I just don't see how it works. Yeah, I could, well, we I that- don't see it either, but I could see maybe in the universe, maybe not the yeah. Shepard story, yeah. but yeah. I could see it's- it being a much better TV series than... Mm. Expensive as hell, but yeah, I'd oh, love to yeah. watch it. Well, also, what is what is the game company's incentive to say yes? Because <laughs> yeah. at this yeah. stage, at, at this point, you know, like Mass Effect, Call of Duty, whatever, these games earn more than a lot of Hollywood movies. Yeah. And mm-hmm. if the movies turn out bad or even not great, yeah. and suddenly that becomes the brand, that's bad for them. Yeah. You know, yeah. if if uh, because no matter what, no matter how big games get. Movies are still bigger. It's just a bigger cultural thing. It's just more accessible. You know, no, like no matter at this point, Resident Evil is better known to the mass culture through the movies than through the games. You know, the games are part of what the Resident Evil movies are the top of, for better or for worse. Probably for worse. You know, if, uh, <laughs> you know, but the game series is degenerating horrendously over years anyway. Yeah, Res- it's. Uh, re- <laughs> I dearly love just about everything that surrounds Resident Evil, but part of it is because Resident Evil has never particularly been like great. You know, like there, there've been some great games, but like narratively, Resident Evil has always been like a big bucket of chum. Yeah, in a charming I lo- way. I, lo- I, I love. <laughs> it Hope this death- is not Chris's chum. <laughs> Sorry, Karen. <laughs> You're almost I, I a love- chum sandwich. <laughs> I mean, I love it to death for that. It's the it's the same way as you know, like when everyone says, "Oh man, you know the Metal Gear Solid series is so arcane." Now I don't ever want it to change because I love it for being ridiculous. Mm. You know, it's like when they say, "You know this new res- this new Metal Gear Solid game looks pretentious, bloated, and stupid," and I'm like, "Thank you, business <laughs> as usual." <laughs> this is exactly what I'm paying for. <laughs> Next up, covering online conduct among gaming fans. This is an extra credits episode called Harassment. This episode has been a long time in coming, and it's been one of the hardest for us to write. There's been incident after incident that has made us want to put this out there and at least make a statement, but each time we've come to the conclusion that we're not a topical show. We aren't here to capitalize on news or leap into the fray if outrage is all we've got. If we don't have something productive to say, or at least some new light to shed on an issue, it's better that we wait until we do. Plenty of other people will express the outrage. Plenty of other people will get the word out. But outrage without direction, just plain anger, no matter how justified, doesn't lead to a solution. So here we go. But just a heads up in advance, this episode's going to be pretty graphic. We're going to be dealing with the base, crass, and cruel side of our culture, and we won't be pulling any punches or censoring anything, so, you know.
Today we'll be looking at harassment. This stuff represents the worst in our community. It's antithetical to everything games are about. Games grew up as a medium about joy, and yet these people have made it an outlet for misdirected hate. I've heard people say that this is harmless. It's not. Go back and, if you can stomach it, watch the Cross Assault video again. Watch that girl's love of the game be crushed out of her. Watch something that was good in her life be turned into something hurtful. I've heard it said that this is just boys being boys. That's no excuse. Raise your kids better if this is what your 13-year-old writes to a woman he's never met. But it's really not just young boys wrestling with their sexuality or trying to figure out their place in the world. The people over at Fat, Ugly, or Slutty have provided us with hours of audio recordings that have shown us these are grown men who should know better. I've heard people say that it's a part of our culture and games wouldn't be games without it. That is the argument of cowards and trolls. This behavior is not us. This isn't the expression of the average player. This is the work of a small but very vocal minority, shouting like children wherever they can to get attention. But too often, this discussion devolves into simply how distasteful this behavior is. We all know it's out there, and we all know it's the worst side of our community, but we can't just leave off the discussion there. We have to fix this. We've gotten mail from a lot of you, especially after the cross-assault debacle, asking what you could do, or talking about how even though you stood up to bullies online, you felt it wasn't enough. First off, thanks for standing up. It's a tough, uncomfortable thing to do, and it absolutely is the first step to changing this. Second, you're right, there is more that can be done, but it's going to take all of us, consumers and developers alike, to do it. We've been thinking about this problem a great deal. It's weighed on us long before cross-assault. This is an episode James has been trying to write literally since we began the show. From the outset, it was clear that the solution to this would have to be something simple and practical, things that could be implemented today. It'll have to be flexible, too, to meet the differing needs of various cultures and communities, and their effectiveness has to be assured. The solutions I have here aren't solutions we came up with on our own. Grace from Fat Ugly or Slutty, Morgan Romain from Red 5, Elisa Melendez from the University of Florida, and Chris Peters, a professor at DigiPen and former Microsoft engineer, were all instrumental in shaping these ideas. After discussions with them and many more, here are the conclusions that we've come to. The first idea is the simplest, but perhaps the most effective solution. What do most of us do when we hear someone spitting off racist or misogynist remarks when we're playing? We hit the mute button. Well, pretty much everyone who offers integrated voice chat, be it a service like Xbox Live or a specific game, already takes metrics on how often a player is muted. We can use those metrics to help prevent harassment. If a player is muted more than 10% above the norm, simply start them as auto-muted. This wouldn't prevent them from talking, and it wouldn't prevent anyone who wants to hear them from unmuting them, but it would take away their megaphone and keep them from easily degrading those around them. It would also attach a stigma to bad behavior. As soon as you jump into a game and you see that someone's been auto-muted, you have an idea of what to expect from them. The same system could be applied to messaging in game services. Each game and service works differently, so adjustments would have to be made to fit each system, but fundamentally, if 80% of the messages that someone sends out aren't getting a response, you can limit them to only sending messages to people on their friends list. They can still send friend requests to whoever they want, but it prevents people from easily sending this kind of crap to anyone at any time. Or here's another possibility. What if some of these communication tools have to be earned rather than just being immediately given to anyone and everyone who creates an account? It would prevent people from simply creating a new account in order to continue their deplorable behavior whenever they find themselves muted or unable to send messages. If you had to reach a certain gamer score or achieve a certain ranking in a game before voice chat was enabled, it would make it much more difficult for people to hide behind these throwaway identities to send out their hate speech. Of course, this unfortunately negatively impacts the vast majority of people who are creating an incredible and positive community simply to limit the power of those who aren't, which is something we should avoid if at all possible. Nonetheless, it is an option if it proves to be necessary. Lastly, sometimes peers are the strongest force of all. For any game that relies on social play, we should incorporate the value of respect directly into the community. If guilds and clans had a shared guild-wide reputation rating, so that bad behavior on the part of any individual lessened the efficacy of the clan as a whole, you would see social pressure create a change in behavior. Because this sort of despicable bullying hurts everyone's experience, not just those they attack directly. And sometimes we need that made clear.
This harassment, discrimination, and misogyny has to stop. It's not who we are, and I know I don't want it to be what our medium is known for. Right now, we're denying our community the most effective tools for dealing with bullies, the ability to, as a group, choose to ignore them. People who do this, the people who spew out torrents of unmitigated hate, don't want dialogue, and they don't do it out of ignorance either. They want attention. Somewhere, something has gone so wrong in their lives that they desperately need people to pay attention to them. They need to feel important and powerful because they lack that in their real lives, and they found that they can get that by hurting people in an environment where there are literally no consequences for them. Right now, it's as if we gave the school bully access to the intercom system and told him that everyone would hear whatever he wanted to say. It's time we take away that megaphone. These are simple ideas, things that we can easily do right now with the technology we already have. Changes as minuscule as auto-muting players who have a history of harassment radically alters the dynamic of online gaming. It brings the power back to where it should be, the community as a whole. We can fix this. We will naturally create a safe environment for everyone to play if given the tools. So I'd like to ask you all to write to your software companies and see if they're willing to give us those tools to implement a muting system or something like it. Let's start with Microsoft. They're the most visible and the service that's most often referenced when harassment in our community comes up. And I believe they'll do it. They're a big company, so they move slowly, but they aren't evil. And they've got to want this change, too. Month after month, whenever James goes somewhere to give a talk, he hears women say that they've stopped paying for gold accounts because the environment is that hostile. We can't let this continue. It's not good for us as a community, and Microsoft has to recognize it's not good for them as a business. So ask them. Ask them to give us the tools we need to make the online community as open and accepting a place as game culture at large. Because this, this isn't us. For years, we have been the culture that took in the people that no one else would. When someone didn't fit in, when they didn't meet society's standard of cool, the gaming community would embrace them. That's how the world should know us, and that's what we should think of ourselves. We aren't this. And in our community, you shouldn't have to hide your voice online. See you next week. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm on board with that. Speaking of pretentious, bloated, and stupid... Yes, <laughs> I was about. <laughs> I was about to say. I was about to wait to hear you say, "Dan, pimp your show." <laughs> no, these were some of the accusations <laughs> flung at, at a, a chap named Phil Fish uh, uh, several months ago. Uh, he, it, it actually, this all relates to uh, not necessarily uh, fans, but enthusiast. Was he is it specifically a paid journalist or an enthusiast journalist that he was uh, having uh, his I clash with? I think he was paid. I'm not exactly sure, but I remember I saw the video that that hmm. it came from, and I think he was part of the series. So now I can't remember though. This relates to a much much bigger issue, and ultimately, I've got a whole bunch of other notes down here. We're going to have to save for another podcast regarding objective versus subjective criticism within gaming journalism. Um, However, when it came down to it, due to the clash and because of various people getting on his case, Phil Fish quit gaming. And he made a game called Fez, which I am reliably told by many people I trust is wonderful. And that means we don't get a Fez 2. That means nobody gets a Fez 2. And this is the ugly fallout of... Uh, these you know, these opened lines of communication. It's not like Mass Effect 3 where the ending's crappy one way or the other depending on which side of the uh, the fence you're sitting uh, and you can ultimately choose which ending you're going to have by either downloading or not downloading that, that uh, extra bit of content. Sharon ended up getting the original ending. I didn't realize I hadn't downloaded it. But there's no choice regarding Fez 2 now because of some people 
Phil Fish quit the business. Now, I've, I've watched her indie game, the movie. I, I, I kind of felt for Phil while I was watching it. I felt a sort of a, a kindred spirit because he's very, very tense during that film. He's it's, Everything's all just like winding up to... Is it, is it Pax that he basically uh, was uh, trying to, to show his game? Yep. Uh, yeah, and, uh, Actually, I was at that Pax. I didn't oh, see his booth. And everything, that was the first Pax I was at. It seemed to be going wrong, and it just he, he had all this sort of like... He was almost like this persecution complex of a, why do you torment me so, universe? And I can understand that, and I can relate to that, because I, I myself am irrationally tense about things that I really don't need to be all that tense about, and I take things way too personally. And so, you know, whether Phil Fish is a nice guy or not, like it was kind of here, here, neither here nor there. Whether Phil Fish is, uh, you know, uh, a good creator or not is here, neither here nor there. Whether Phil Fish was not thick-skinned enough uh, to actually cut it in this business is an empirical fact. He wasn't. He didn't have the ability to just shrug it off. And there are going to remain casualties of this scenario. And yeah, I've heard, continue. I've heard the thick skin debate so many times. Yeah. And while I do agree with it to an extent, after a certain point, I think you shouldn't be getting that much crap in your inbox in the first place. Mm. Yeah. It's just no not how, justified. Yeah. No matter how thick the skin you have is, you there is no reason you should be subjected to have, like, you shouldn't necessarily need to have one. No one deserves to have that response. There's lots of, I think, I feel like if he didn't feel like he had a skin, thick skin for that, there are lots of things he could do to not draw quite so much of it. Yeah. I think that wouldn't really mean sacrificing who he was or who he wanted to be. I think there's just lots of just in, lots of tact and stuff that one can use. But all the same, that still doesn't mean that at any point the reaction he got was justified. And it is definitely, it's a, it's a really unfortunate situation just losing a creative person. Mm-hmm. I will I will agree that there there were times he could have handled it better absolutely and I don't really think that his approach to how he quit was the most dignified way to do it mm. but I mean I got to say I was I was very much more on his side than on the journalist or the gamer side because it it's just like when you see the amount of crap that he got every day like I'm I'm actually kind of surprised he didn't do it sooner that stuff wears on a person, and that can really get you down. And I think what people forget is that there's another person on the other side of this artwork that is reading this stuff and is taking it in. And <clears throat> we forget that all the time because we're just yelling at a computer screen. There's a line in uh, The Simpsons, 22 short films about Springfield, the very beginning. Anyone? It's Barton Millhouse on the bridge. I wouldn't know. Uh, I'd, I'd have to be watching it right now. There's so many Simpsons. Millhouse, do yeah. you ever think about these people... You know, in the cars, and Milhouse says, "I try not to." It makes it harder to spit on them because they are literally spitting over the bridge <laughs> onto the cars. Yeah. But that, just as a sort of a kids' pastime, that is what Twitter is like. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I mean, the the approach of it some... should be called spitter. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, um, the approach of some journalists on it too are, you know, it it drives me nuts when. I see journalism that does not take into account how difficult it is on a person to make a game or to to keep making their art despite all this crap they're getting. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that was part of the problem that 
that that one journalist that sparked this whole thing was saying. I forget his name. And usually I'd look it up, but I'm not going to. I feel like he's from game trailers, but I may be wrong. I forget his name, Dan. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Uh, and like I said, we've, we're really lucky with, I mean, our fan reactions. We don't really get almost no hate speech. We don't get any of that stuff. But like over time, like it just, it's just kind of wears on you. I can't imagine how people who actually do have to deal with that kind of response. Like I could deal with it for like a week and probably even a month, but over time it just, it just makes you tired. It just makes you exhausted and it just, like, I can't imagine someone putting up with that for years on end. It's partly why I still, I'm impressed that Anita Sarkeesian is still willing to put her face out there in a video mm. and just invite more of it because she knows she's going to keep getting it for every single video she releases. For the rest but of her life. Do- there's a contingent of people who will constantly abuse her for the rest of yeah. her life. Imagine everyone at home, imagine that for a second. Imagine every time you make a comment on Twitter, someone says, You're a cunt, shut up. Yeah. And, and if, because of who you are. And I can't imagine the psychological damage that that does to a person. Because for every. Uh, I had a, a class with. Um, a guy who worked for G4 in Canada as it was a game journalism class. And he was talking about how, you know, for all of the nice comments that he gets on a video, if there's even one bad comment, that's the one that sticks with you. It eats it at is. you. Yeah. yeah. It's the one you see. It's the one you remember. You can't go to sleep because of the grinding teeth and the clenched fists. Yeah. <laughs> and then they're checking and checking just in case someone's responded and, and, and defended you. Because you know if you get into a, a slanging match, you're like, wait a fucking second. Then it's not, no, then nothing good can come of that. Because ultimately, no. you can't really defend against uh, shitty comments. You can no. make your case, but you can't really... 99 times out of 100, if you present somebody with a perfectly logical reason for why... You did what you did. They will still feel like they're in the right. Well, because they're not there to have a conversation. They're there for the intention. They want they want your attention and they want to make you mad. They're never doing it for a goodwill of any kind. Did I show you that um, YouTube video by Vi Hart? Uh, no. No. It's uh, oh, sorry. There's a bunch of them. It's actually it's, it's all about basically dealing with uh, comments. And I think I'm actually going to end. On the, I, I did show it to you, Dan. I remember. Yeah, you did send that to me. I remember it now. Yeah, uh, it's all. Bas- uh, I'm going to end on that one after we finish talking. But basically, it's it's this applies to everyone who's ever put anything out on YouTube and and gotten flack for it, or said anything on Twitter and gotten flack for it. Yeah, Vi Hart, very smart uh, lady. So uh, I'd like to get her on at some point and pick her brains about various things. You do need a thick skin. In, in, in like the, in this whole business, in this whole culture, but you really shouldn't. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it, it's not like, uh, speaking specifically about the Phil Fish situation, it is asinine that making a video game should mean that you have to deal with that kind of blowback. Hmm. Now, granted, you know, it's, you know, Phil Fish is not entirely without blame in his own situation because he does get in the stuff and mix it up and he does have his own bluntly stated opinions about things. You know, he, he earned a lot of at least the theoretical ire that he brought down about himself when he ran his mouth about other developers, when he ran his mouth about the Japanese games industry. Fine, but you shouldn't need 
it shouldn't be a job requirement to do this to be able to put up with abuse. You're not a boxer. You're not a politician. You're not a radio host. You know, maybe the lesson is if you can't deal with that sort of thing, you know, don't become one of these publicly engaging figures. But how the hell else do you get your stuff shown? You know, if you're an indie developer, you have to be out there. And what a loss if only thick-skinned people are going to be entering, are going to be putting out creative work. Yeah. Yeah. And also people who are afraid to actually say anything in case it gets misconstrued. To to that end, even though I don't agree with what he said, especially about Japanese games, the creators actually being able to commentate on their own medium fearlessly is a good thing. Surely. Although they they have the ears of the masses and, and technically they can exert a lot of influence, a creator who feels he can't say anything for fear of his own community... It's, it's just trying to pull this back in your brains to a tribal scenario. Imagine the shaman afraid to start telling an epic story to his tribe in case someone gets up with a spear and says, that is not how it ended. Do it properly. <laughs> that shit is not how it's supposed to work. Yeah, and I mean, and the, the whole... The whole Japanese developer thing was so stretched out of context. I was at that panel and I, I met Phil Fish at that GDC. He's a really nice guy. <laughs> um, and, uh, and also keep in mind, I, I came up to him as a journalist and he was still super nice to me. Um, you know, and I talked to him about that whole thing and he was just like, I just kind of, it, it, the thing is that he's, he's got like a kind of sick backhanded sense of humor. So when he threw that comment out there, like, Probably wasn't the best idea to say it on a microphone, but it was definitely, it was supposed to be taken with a grain of salt, you know, and it, it drives me nuts that Fez was such a great game, <clears throat> and I, I wish that we had more games like it, and that's why I get so upset that we just, we got rid of the guy who was making something really good, and it's our own damn fault. It's and I, frustrating. Yeah, and, and, I've talked about this a lot with my roommate because he works in games too. And his response was just like, good riddance. I don't want Phil Fish, you know, having this bad attitude and representing indie indie devs because he... Like Anita Sarkeesian, Phil Fish does not speak for all of us. Yeah. Um, But, like... And if if we reacted less ridiculously harshly to them, maybe more of them would speak for themselves. Yeah. And but we terrify them. <laughs> yeah, it is and frustrating that, that like we. Those, and we I say fan we, I'm including so... myself in this because I am very outspoken about Danny McBride and how he is cinematic poison. And I hope he never reads it because I don't want him to actually feel bad. I do realize he's a person, but every time he's on a film, he makes it worse. But so I am so we the... love, but we like love this these mediums and these products and these works of art so, so much and we so frequently respect the authors and creators of them so little it just we're robbing ourselves yeah okay so what can we do because ultimately this is quite a depressing debate <laughs> and there has to be yeah. something positive from it because that's what Gonzo's all about we don't just go mm, it's a shit state of affairs still nothing you can do about it shrug and turn off the show. That's not what we do. What can we do? As we speaking right now, everyone else listening, what can we do to ease 
the tension somewhat. Grow up. <laughs> we are growing up. <laughs> yeah. But we we have to encourage everyone else to grow up in a way that doesn't sound like we're being patronizing assholes. But I am a patronizing asshole. I know, but we can't <laughs> escape that. <laughs> so am I. Have you listened to me this whole way through this? I, I'm listening to myself I'm going, you fucking patronizing asshole. I really am trying not to be, but ultimately I can see a way forward in this. And it does involve being civil to one another. And it does, it doesn't involve getting into screaming matches with the internet boy Taliban because that only strengthens their pathetic arguments or loudens them. Yeah, I think, uh, really just kind of leading by example, you know, just being, be good and expect good to be done on you as well. You know, when I think of when, when we go to PAX, there's just so much love in that convention and it's, wonderful everybody's so open the enforcers that work there are wonderful um i haven't heard of like any really bad situations coming out of there and i just every time i go there i'm always just kind of in these days of you know it's, it's a surreal experience and i don't understand why that seems like it disappears when we go home mm. we're, not, so, we're not seeing a human face attached that's, yeah that's honestly the that's it. <laughs> it only it really only works on indiv- like in individual cases, but I found that just trying to appeal to attempting to see the other party as a person like and and helping them to see you that way as well. Like we've gotten various like various emails in who will people will be furious at us and rage at us and disregarding us com- and just disregarding our humanity completely. Usually, like nine times out of ten, I respond to them like I was just responding to a normal person on the street, kind of being polite, being nice, just, hey, I'm just a person face over here. They almost always, like, snap out of it and suddenly address address me the same way. It, it's weird how often it works. People respond and, much better to compassion and sympathy than rage and anger. It's actually really shocking. And defensiveness. Yeah. Here's another wacky idea for you to totally disregard the accountability that goes with putting your own face on the internet and your own name on the internet now i'm not suggesting that everyone do this because i actually know people who have genuinely had horrible experiences with people finding out who they are where they live and terrible things have happened that isn't this is not a catch-all save all ability for everyone but if it becomes if hypothetically speaking it became trendy to put your own face your own name, and if Twitter became audio as well, your own mm-hmm. voice, there is a responsibility that goes with that. You are not hiding behind a picture of Rex. <laughs> there is something to be said about backing up what you have to say with your own face and with your own genuine point of view and not hiding behind a character. And encouraging that in others will very, very slowly encourage everyone to just come out from behind the GIFs and the JPEGs and the psycho killer 10,000 exclamation points. And it will slowly dial back and dial down the preponderance of an anonymous screaming racist boy child. I'm going to use. I'm going to be the bad guy and use the D word. Uh, diversity 
will help fix a lot of this. Mm-hmm. I, I genuine, I genuinely believe this to be true. Um, I mean, maybe I take a more pessimistic view of of the culture as it is right now than 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 some of you do. I don't think that the the bad stuff in the that's in the culture right now is changeable. I think it's it's there. It is what it is. It's always going to be this way. You know, not for nothing. And you know, fine. People can hate me on this if they want to. Please go right ahead. You already do. You know. Angry young white men are awful people, for the most part. They just are, and I'm, I'm talking from from a, a U.S. point of view. The 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 guys who are pissed off that Cole has short hair, those are always gonna they're always gonna be assholes. You're not gonna fix them. You can't change them. You can't redial them. It's the it's their state of being. You know, Dale Gribble will always be Dale Gribble, mm-hmm. and yeah. I I think that. Having the only thing you can do is make them not the majority. Yeah, and and that's why the Phil Fish thing upsets me. Even if I have my own issues with Phil Fish, because you know, imagine I almost said, God, imagine what video games would be like if the only people who felt comfortable being in and working in this industry were you know aggressive, fuck you, buddy, you know, macho assholes. It'd look like it does now. Yeah. And, you know, having more women, having more diversity of voices, having people who just come from, you know, a natural disposition that isn't aggressive and in your face or aggressive and in your face about different things and, you know, different cultures, uh, a more, more of a cultural miasma, you know, to be brought together. The anger that comes from people who are bullies and assholes on Twitter and in this community and everything else, it only exists so long as they think they have a whole bunch of guys backing them up. Mm-hmm. So long as, so, so long as a guy, you know, no one stands up in the middle of a bar and uses the N word if he doesn't think that there are eight guys behind him who are going to jump behind him and keep him from getting his ass kicked. We gotta outnumber the bad guys, and that means we should be, the, the people among us who do want diversity, clarity, goodness in this, need to keep reaching out to bring more people into this. Because once there are more good people than bad people, the bad people have no power. They have no ability to pull their bullshit if they're gonna stand up and go, hey, F you, you feminists, you know, uh, you know, what, whatever thing they wanna say, and then a whole mountain of people jump up in their face and say, hey, that's not cool. They have no power anymore. You know, we can, and, and it, there is precedent. You know, you look at other mediums like, uh, film and TV, you know, where a lot of the crap that happens in the actual games and in gaming fandom simply wouldn't fly because there's a diversity of audience and a diversity of creators that says, no, we are not this. This is a progressive medium. We are progressive, you know, humans that you and what you represent are not cool here anymore. You know, Hollywood reacted to 9-11 and the run-up to war in Iraq and all of that, you know, Bush-era bullshit, you know, by making... Quest, for the most part, questioning anti-war, you know, is it good to be in this kind of patriotic fervor movie? Video games responded by making Call of Duty. We can do better. This is that civil war I was talking about in the Mass Effect podcast. Again, it's an oversimplification, but it's a difference between people who want to keep things the same, keep things on their level and allow themselves to control situations, and people who favor negotiation and discussion 
mm. and finding some way forward from that. It's really hard not to sound like I'm on some sort of elitist cloud here. I'm not. But ultimately, what you said uh, there, uh, Bob, doesn't uh, preclude what I was suggesting. In fact, it, it kind of backs it up. It's it's, a, it's about dialing back the unpleasant people and making it clearer that they are really in the minority. Yeah. One hundred years ago this year, composer Igor Stravinsky at the Theatre de Champs-Élysées presented a ballet piece named The Rite of Spring. If you've seen Fantasia, it's the one with all the dinosaurs. The audience were a societally opposed mix of the wealthy and fashionable, who were expected to see lovely dances with beautiful music, and a bohemian set, who, according to poet-philosopher John Cocteau, would acclaim right or wrong anything that is new because of their hatred of the boxes. This was typical of the average Parisian ballet audience at the time. Just imagine all the rich people in Titanic thrown into the same theatre as all the poor people in Moulin Rouge. About halfway through, a riot broke out. It is believed this was due to already rancorous tensions between the two groups, greatly exacerbated by the unsettling themes and unusual musical structure of the piece, which put everybody on edge. The music always goes to the note next to the one you'd expect, wrote one exasperated critic. Top hats were crushed onto heads, canes were used as weapons, it got ugly. It's safe to say, of course, that there were a large amount of people in the audience who just wanted to watch the ballet and listen to the music, but couldn't because of the riots. Today, despite very mixed reviews at the time, with some declaring Stravinsky a hack and others a genius, the Rite of Spring is considered an absolute classic. What do you think our great-great-grandchildren are going to think of Mass Effect 3? Let us know in the comments. Next up, we've got an episode of Feedbackula from GameSpot covering the very timely, frenzied fan response to their 9 out of 10 score for Grand Theft Auto V. So this is Johnny Chiodini with Review Revulsion. And welcome to Feedbackula, the show that delves into the murky sewers of the internet and picks out the stuff worth salvaging, leaving the rest to get flushed into the ocean and swallowed up by bottom feeders. Sliding past today's unwanted alligators... Yeah, well, it's not like we could choose anything else, could we? Yes, after years of anticipation, Grand Theft Auto V is finally out, apparently earning $800 million in its first 24 hours after release, and making scores of gamers worldwide walk a bit funny. Carolyn reviewed GTA V, scoring it 9 out of 10, thereby declaring it an editor's choice game and a resounding success. Near perfect, in fact, as the number 9 out of 10 kind of suggests. A lot of you, however, were absolutely furious. Don't believe me? Let's take a look, because it was about the only thing approaching funny to go on in the comments section this week. Nine? <laughs> this is preposterous! I hate GameSpot, stupid GameSpot. F*** you! F*** GameSpot, I'm never coming here again! F*** 
you, GameSpot, you low-life sh** gaming media site. What a f***ing embarrassment you are. Unsubscribed will be a very popular comment on this video. LOL at you. F*** off. This game is a 10 out of 10. F*** off. F*** off. A 9? Are you f***ing serious? This game has been in production and planned for over 5 years. It deserves a 10. No wonder IGN's better than you idiots. Holy s***. 9.0 GS always being an asshole. Yes, it's still a high score, but they always deny the facts of a game. I mean, in every game. For seeing that GameSpot would do this, always wants to be special. Idiots, GameSpot! It deserves 10! Time to block GameSpot and my router so these morons don't get another cent from me in advertisement revenue. A 9.0 out of 10. GameSpot is shit. Period. There you go, folks. GameSpot is shit. GameSpot is a reeking pile of fecal matter because we gave a game people like a 9 instead of a 10. Let's all just think about that for a minute, shall we? Because on first glance, it seems kind of juvenile. Shall we think about it for a minute? Let's think about it for a minute. No, it still seems pretty f***ing juvenile. Okay, I get people are excited for GTA V. They've been waiting a long time for it, and it's an important franchise. Rockstar is also incredibly good at crafting their message in the run-up to release. I also get that, because they're excited, they want to see the game do well. They want to see everyone else love GTA V and praise its arrival as much as they do. But there are two things slightly amiss about the fury we've seen over the score. Firstly, it shouldn't be essential for everyone to love something for you to enjoy it. If you disagree with the score, that's fine. It shows you're capable of having your own opinions. Second, 9 out of 10 is practically perfect. How is that possibly insulting? So now what? I know, though, that some of you will be sitting there thinking that it's not the number you're bothered with, but the justification for it. If you somehow missed the ensuing furore, Carolyn's review challenged the game for being politically muddled and profoundly misogynistic, saying in particular, It's deeply frustrating that its world has little room for women, except to portray them as strippers, prostitutes, long-suffering wives, humorless girlfriends, and goofy new-age feminists we're meant to laugh at. This piece of criticism, coming from a professional game critic, enraged some members of the GameSpot community to unbelievable lengths, triggering personal attacks on Carolyn in the comments, and even a petition to get her fired for disrespecting Grand Theft Auto V, a game which, need I remind you, was given 9 out of 10. Politically muddled and profoundly misogynistic. What a f***ing surprise coming from this reviewer. Not even going to read this shit. Fire Carolyn. It's GTA. Of course it's misogynistic. Fuck your feelings. No, you know what? Fuck you. That's not good enough. A game being popular does not deny its reviewer the right to question it. That's what professional criticism is. If there's something questionable in a game, damn right we should talk about it. It's fine because it's GTA is not an adequate excuse for anything, and I'm not going to show any more comments like that in this episode, because to be honest, it's not funny anymore. This stuff is repugnant, and it has no place being on GameSpot. Disagree with the review all you want, that's your prerogative, but attacking people personally because they don't share your opinion is pretty low. And bear in mind, that's coming from me. Of course, there are a lot of people who contribute to the GameSpot community and are generally awesome. Even when they're telling us we're doing our jobs wrong, they're considerate, articulate, and generally behave like human beings. We love those people. They make our jobs worthwhile. But the thing is, there were so many comments this week saying that political discourse has no place in game reviews or that it's just a game and we should just shut up and deal with it. Really, though, honestly, what kind of attitude is that? How does that make the gaming community look? 
If we ever want to see games being broadly accepted as an art form or as anything but a slightly quirky pastime, we have to include politics. We have to ask questions about gender, about the portrayal of characters, and about the limits of satire. Because satire isn't satire if it doesn't challenge the thing it copies, that's just repetition. If people can be left feeling Rockstar didn't have a tight enough hold on that concept, then of course we should discuss it. If you feel Rockstar nailed it, fine, but don't attack others for having reservations about a medium that's supposed to be all-inclusive. Looking at the amount of vitriol our community spewed this week, the fact I've spent more than a year of my life making this show suddenly makes me feel distinctly uneasy. Because what if I've been directly contributing to this mess the whole time? What if the very user input I hate to see on this site has actually increased as a result of my work? You know what? I don't really want to see it happen anymore. I don't want to sweep hate speech under the rug and pretend it didn't happen any more than I want to give it a platform from which it can be repeated. The personal abuse verging on persecution is actually prohibited in GameSpot's terms of use document, and yet it runs rampant across the site, and I don't want to contribute to it anymore. I'm not sure where this show is going in the future, if I'm honest, but I can tell you right now, I don't like the way our community currently treats the concept of the comment box. I'll see you next week, I suppose. Feedbackula, I barely know her. I've got two pertinent quotes here to round off with. Number one, in order to grow your audience, you must betray their expectations. And Hayao Miyazaki said that. The second is, remember, it costs nothing to encourage an artist, and the potential benefits are staggering. A pat on the back to an artist now could one day result in your favourite film or the cartoon you love to get stoned watching or the song that saves your life. Discourage an artist, you get absolutely nothing in return, ever. And Kevin Smith said that. And on that note, if you'd like to encourage this artist, you can go to the top right-hand corner of the main Gonzo Planet website and take part in this month's donation drive. Or, as I said on a previous show, you can just wait until I do a podcast that particularly impresses or appeals to you on a meaningful level and donate then. Now, I've had about a thousand downloads each for the Mass Effect 3 shows, and that seems to be my average number of listeners per week. I've had 23 donations so far. That's 977 listeners who are either waiting until I do a show they like, waiting until payday, just plain forgot, or are content to listen to the next year of Gonzo entirely for free. This show takes up a big chunk of my week, and I'd rather level with you on the numbers than not. And I'd say a single British pound from each of you would adequately cover the time and personal funds I put into this show and website. In fact, I go so far as saying 100 pennies, the price of a king-sized Twix or a can of Dr Pepper, for 50 podcasts throughout the year is rather a killer deal. To the 23 who have donated so far, thank you guys and girls very, very much. You've all been more than generous. Once again, even though I do have to bite the bullet and ask every now and then, I really don't mind doing this for free. I do it for the joy of reaching out to you guys with thought-provoking audio content and the debates and friendships that spring up as a result. And from that perspective, I'm a very rich man.
That was Lindsay Sterling with Electric Daisy Violin. The other two tracks you'll have heard on this very show were Crystallize and Elements, and you can find her brilliant self-titled album on iTunes, and check out her wonderful YouTube videos. Okay, I think that's it for yeah, this great, one. Yeah, I think that's rapid. a great one to stop on. <laughs> and I think that uh, if, if you look at our um, communities, we're doing that already, ultimately, and, and, and sort of just... <laughs> The more people come to our communities, the greater the spread gets. Um, so, yeah, thank you, guys. thank you, all of our listeners and, and viewers for um, for just for not being assholes. <sighs> okay, right. So um, let's finish off. And I've, we've already pitched your shows, and uh, everyone now knows who you are. And uh, I, I will say again. Uh, Dan and Lily, um, I already plan to uh, have you guys back on to actually talk about the making of uh, extra credits. Uh, that was actually going to be part of this podcast, but then it exploded outwards into far more <laughs> weighty territory. That was probably uh, my fault. <laughs> yes, but uh, but thank you, uh, Lily. It was uh, there was various things that I've been dying to talk about for the past year or so, and didn't really have anything meaty enough to uh, to get my teeth into. So this is a, a rare conceptual show. Um, but yeah, I would. I'll be, we'll be getting you guys on to talk technicals about that and uh, talk Ooh. about yourselves some more. Um, and Bob, thank you so so much for coming on. It has been an absolute pleasure chatting with oh, you. Thank you. Glad to do it anytime. Seriously. Oh well, don't tempt me because I, I, I will definitely be trying to get you on again to uh, to talk about other things uh, if if you have the time and the inclination. That would be brilliant. My business is attention. Call me up whenever uh, whenever you need. If I can find the time, I'll make the time. Thank you, Bob. As I've said before, you're a gentleman and a scholar. And that is it from us. Uh, next week uh, will be the beginning of Gonzo Adventures, which is the first in a series of Dungeons & Dragons-style tabletop games, uh, where uh, I will be the DM for the first time in my life. We recorded the show a couple of uh, weeks ago. I'm not going to say how it went, but I think you guys are going to like it. Uh, the intrepid adventurers that we have in this crew are Neil Taylor of Gameburst, Sharon Shaw and Matt Ramsey of Do Try This at Home, and Mark Ray of the AI Bots. And you'll see how the erstwhile dwarf elf and two humans fare against the Tower of the Sorcerer. <laughs> okay, so that'll be in a week's time. Uh, and uh, after that, Ghostbusters. We will see you guys really soon. Thank you very, very much, my guests, the wonderful... Lily Scaldaferi and Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and Bob Chipman, a.k.a. Movie Bob. Hey, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Okay, and we're going to finish on Vi Hart's guide on how to deal with criticism. Okay, first of all, there's no such thing as negative comments. Or at least, YouTube hasn't implemented them yet. You might think they have negative thumbs up because they have thumbs down, but they're clearly not equivalent. Anyway, I've spoken about artist stuff before, so today I want to talk about how when a specific comment really gets to you, you probably have something to learn about yourself and improve on. So with no further ado, here is Vihart's guide to comments. Type number one, the give me my X minutes back. These commenters do not value their own time, and making this comment is a lie to themselves. They might even have liked your video under other circumstances, but something about it reminded them that they've been on YouTube for far longer than they should have been. By blaming you, it takes the blame off themselves for wasting their own time, and sets up a future of voluntarily giving up their personal responsibility. They know if they say, I wasted my own time, the correct follow-up is to go do something productive. But if it's, you wasted my time, the natural follow-up is, maybe this cat video over here will be more responsible with my time.
time. And maybe it gives them warm, fuzzy feels that makes them forget the shame of choosing to spend their lives on the path of least resistance. If comments like this get to you, it could be A. Insecurity over how you spend your own time. I mean, they think you wasted their time and are retaliating by wasting your time with a stupid comment, but you actually create things and there's a lot of demands on your time, and your time, unlike theirs, is actually worth something, right? It galls you that they would claim their time was wasted and then follow up by wasting more time commenting. You would never do that. You, unlike their stupid face, spend your time super wisely, don't you? Certainly you never choose to waste your time reading and obsessing over negative comments and you wish you'd never read it in the first place and I want my X minutes back. B. Existential dread at being reminded that you can't give them their X minutes back. No one can. Our lives are finite and we are all going to die. You feel alone in this thought because the commenters, wasting time like they do, don't seem to comprehend their own mortality. C. More existential dread. The commenter doesn't seem to get that you are a real person, but you are totally a person and it's uncomfortable to remember that in other people's worlds you don't exist or exist as a machine for their entertainment, and that functionally might be true. Maybe they can't choose how to spend their own time, and you are deterministically doomed to obsess over their comment forever. Anyway, if you come across a comment like that, the correct move is to let your eyes flow right over it and on to the next one. Type number two, the direct and shallow insult. You sound annoying. What's wrong with your face? Commenters like these are thoughtless and bored and obviously don't have very high self-esteem. They've been taught to be normal, so if anything's different about you, well, that's not allowed in the rulebook they know. But in the anonymous internet context, I don't think the usual explanation of them trying to put you down to make themselves feel bigger quite cuts it. They probably don't see you as a real-life person and would never make the comment to your face, so it's not about putting you down. In fact, their comments aren't aimed at you at all. They comment to pretend that they're not just wasting time on the internet, but being active participants, discerning in their tastes. Their commenting justifies their watching, and just like voting in American Idol or tweeting your local news, their opinion further invests themselves into their identity as a judge, observer, consumer. They have been taught to be vocally judgmental by the people for whom judging means watching, and watching means money. Plus, other commenters might reply refuting their insult, which proves their comment matters. But if it matters to you, my fellow creator, that says something about you. A. You might be uncomfortable with the fact that, from their subjective viewpoints, these things are true. Sure, if they only got to know you, they'd realize you're so cool, but they made a surface-level judgment. What if people in real life think you're annoying and have a weird face and you never knew it? Well, the truth is, sometimes people probably do, but they don't say it because in real life people know that we see strangers differently than we see our friends, that the weirdness of your face is a temporary artifact of strangerhood, and if they became your friend, you'd suddenly become charming. B. You might not be secure in who you want to be. You're conditioned to react negatively to all insults because back when people could only insult you to your real life face, insults meant personal dislike. You know you shouldn't care if a bully dislikes you. But until you sort out who you want to be, it's tough to figure out who else matters, who you admire enough that their negative opinion might signify something you want to change about yourself. So you err on the safe side and feel shame whenever you don't live up to being every single kind of person possible. C. Or it could be existential dread over the thoughtless, sheep-like behavior of the masses pretending there is meaning to their judgments, the sound and fury signifying nothing, in contrast to yourself, who does real meaningful work, right? Anyway, the correct response to comments like those is to let your eyes glide right past them and on to the next. Type 3. The Crazy Town Supernuts Bigotry Festival, Ultra Polite Intellectual Put Down, or Disappointed High Horse. 
These are the same type of comment made by the same type of dissatisfied person who is prejudiced against you, who think they are superior because of one thing they hold close to their identity. Gender, religion, education, the clothes they wear or car they drive, general sense of entitlement. They truly think they are better by virtue of one thing. They are indignant that by all appearances you are better than them without it. So they let everyone else know it's a farce. It's them that has that quality, not you. The interesting thing is how blind the commenter is to the fact that their comment does not reflect well on them. These are the type of people who follow up a sexist comment by saying, but come on, we all know it's true, because they believe everyone is secretly sexist, that it raises their status and anyone who disagrees is just doing it to be PC. Someone says, I wish I could have enjoyed this, but I just can't get past the way you pronounce nuclear. And in her head, everyone's like, ooh, she's so smart and clever. One person will reply to an anti-Semitic remark with, what a shame you're a racist. And then on the next video say, how disappointing that you're a Mormon. I expected better of you. And on the next with, what a shame you smoke. I almost respected you. She's not saying it out of concern for your health. She's saying it because she imagines people reading her comment and saying, you are so right. What a sad person you're commenting on. They've adopted their role as a consumer, a judge without a court parroting what someone taught them is okay to say, because then, as with reality TV, they can feel superior just doing nothing. These are those who exist to judge and be judged. That's no way to live a happy and successful life. These people care about one thing about any other person, and it's not their race or spelling ability or what music they listen to. It's how that other person sees them. By the way, just as the chauvinist assumes everyone's secretly sexist, the narcissist assumes everyone else is also trying to fake who they are for status and attention, and that's where you get the type of comment where they accuse you of not being a real whatever, because if they were you, they would be pretending, would desperately want people to see them that way, and being called out on it would be the most shameful thing possible. Maybe these people are just young and life hasn't given them a reality check yet, but ignore them and take your moral advice from people who you respect and who respect you. If these type of comments still get to you, it could be... A. Conditioned defensiveness because, while these people have no power over you, you've had to deal with real-life people with similar attitudes who ended up negatively affecting your life and it sucked. Now you're prejudiced against prejudice and can't figure out whether that means you have to be prejudiced against yourself or not and it's driving you nuts. B. Regret that you allowed these people to view your beautiful work and for free, too. C. Existential dread. Humanity is terrifyingly broken and possibly doomed. At least you care about things that actually matter, right? You know you're better by virtue not of what you say, but of what you do. You create things of value. You change the fabric of the world, making it a better place. And that means something, right? Or at least outweighs the fact that you don't recycle your cardboard. Anyway, the way to deal with these kinds of comments is to treat those people just like any other human in a crowd of humans. Let your eyes glide past them and move on. There's other comment types I don't really have time for, like the entitled demand, the fundamental misunderstanding, the creepy and possessive. And if these get to you, you might feel overly stressed, feel misunderstood or impotent, and feel defensive because real-life stalkers are bad, respectively. The cure for all these things is probably to go chill with real-life friends who make you feel safe, both mentally and physically. Also, let your eyes glide past the comments and move on. I know in these videos you're supposed to admit that you're scared and you care what people think of you and stuff, and so I should confess. I, by heart, am not scared at all. Creating is a wonderful, joyful process, whether I choose to share what I create or not. I'm sure there's tons of flaws in this video, certainly there are in myself, but I don't care whether it's correct. I don't even care if you like it. All I care about is whether you can find anything valuable, anything interesting or thought-provoking to take from it. We're safe from each other. 
I have no power over you that you don't give me, and you have no power over me that I don't give you. It's easy to imagine that if you're scared, everyone is secretly scared, and that you'll always be scared, but that's not the truth. If you obsess over what people think of you all the time and it keeps you from doing things you want to do, that's not normal or okay. That sounds like social anxiety disorder, and you don't have to put up with that. Like Hank Green said in his video on this topic, which I think is excellent, though obviously I disagree with the premise and conclusion, your greatest creation is yourself. Like any great work of art, creating a great self means putting in hard work every day for years. And just like how the first couple books most great authors write are unpublished and terrible while they get better at the craft of writing, every time you work on yourself, you'll hone your ability to self-improve even if you don't see it. I know I haven't been entirely serious through all this video, and I've been slowly fading from black and white back to color just to mess with you, but here's the truth. I like you, and I want you to be the best. And I don't want to hear any excuses people have taught you. You are capable of more than you realize. So go create something and share it and have fun ignoring comments because you are safe here. Right, this next bit is uh, a webcomic uh, called Mused, A Day at the Park. It's by somebody named Kiriakakis, so we figured we'd convey it to you in audio form and also give you a link in the uh, show notes so that you can actually match the uh, words up with imagery. Okay, so uh, all you need to know is uh, it's a park. There's a little chap with just this giant one eye, like a sort of creature out of Monsters, Inc., sat on a park bench with a small box and a giant bloated Alice in Wonderland fish comes tottering along wearing sort of old man clothes like posh old man clothes little bowler hat atop his head <laughs> and a walking cane and uh, a newspaper under his arm and he sits down next to him and then basically I'm playing the fish and Lily's playing the little guy with the eye okay so fish man comes tottering along and then sits down next to uh, the little eye guy without waiting for an answer and the eye guy says uh, of course because it seems like the old man is the old fish is not listening to the uh, the eye chap it's okay, a little newspaper yeah and he's just reading away and then the eye chap starts talking to himself <laughs> really I beg your pardon oh no sorry I was just talking to my um... to that little box of yours I presume yeah, it's it's my collection. A collection? That's interesting. I happen to be a collector myself. He's like Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> he does look like that. Uh, oh, that's nice. No, you have to say that like uh, Shirley. Oh, that's nice. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. You're much better at impersonation than I am. <laughs> I can't do both, though. So, what's in the box? Lots of stuff, but mostly questions. Questions? What are you collecting? Oh, nothing quite so eccentric. Just a good old-fashioned collection of answers. Oh. Do you have something against answers? No, no, nothing like that. It's just, I would never trade a question for an answer. I can't really see the long-term profit. Hmm. Long-term profit? What do you mean? Well, answers, as I see it, are useful to have around, but kind of boring, too. I mean, they don't seem to participate in the ever-transforming dance of the whole universe as we are. Sticking with them means you lose out on most of the fun. 
Reality can change as easily as the way you care to see it. An answer as static in its nature as it is refers to one frozen snapshot of that reality. Its value can only go down. Today's treasure could be tomorrow's garbage. Questions, on the other hand, seem to keep up with the dance, if anything. They can grow in value. It makes little sense to collect anything that could just lose value over time. Don't you think? Uh, well, I think that such radical ideas belong to youngsters such as yourself. Radical? Really? How, how is it even possible to maintain such a collection? I, I mean, it's common knowledge that questions are always on heat to mate with answers. Everybody knows they rarely survive the mating process. That's true. It can be hard at times. All I can do is train them as well as I can and hope for the best. And does it work? I can't complain. My questions are getting along quite peacefully with my answers most of the... Ah, gotcha. So you do collect answers after all. But of course, everybody does. He's not just you... like Jabba the Hutt, he's kind of like a Vogon. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. Um, of course, everybody does. You need answers to base decisions on. Decisions that lead to actions. We wouldn't do much of anything if we were always indecisive. All I'm saying is, I see no point in treasuring them. That's all. Once you see that an answer is not serving its question properly anymore, it should be tossed away. It's just their natural life cycle. They usually kick and scream, raising one hell of a ruckus when we ask them to leave, especially when they have been with us for a long time. You see, too many actions have been based on those answers. Too much work and energy invested on them. They feel important, so full of themselves. They would answer to no one, not even their initial question. What's the point if a wrong answer will stop you from returning to the right question? Although sometimes people have no questions to return to, which is usually why they defend them with such strong conviction. This is exactly why I'm extra cautious with these big old answers that have been lying around before we came along. They bully their way into our collection without being invited in by any questions of our own. We accept them just because they have satisfied the questions of so many before us, seeking the questions which fits them instead. My favorite kind of answers are those that my questions give birth to, questions that I managed to keep safe long enough to do so. These baby answers might seem insignificant in comparison at first, but they are of much better quality. They mean no harm to your questions, after all. They are family, and they make no fuss when you discard them. I see you've already given it a lot of thought, but what about worthless questions, lad? He's going to sound a bit like Joker. Are you going to tell me? <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Are you going to tell me that they are all worth keeping just because they are questions? Well, in a way, yes. For me, at least. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here listening to your endless gabble and never occurred to me that you've lost your marbles. Still sounds like Joker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, with the extra laughing. Oh, man. No, because that would be... <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. Just think about it for a second. The only way a question can prove itself unworthy is by attracting a better question. You're never empty-handed. What does an unworthy answer leave you with? He says... Phoenix. So, what's supposed to be the meaning behind all this? Is there one? Meaning? Uh, I don't know. Maybe the lack of one meaning is exactly what gives everything the chance to have one. Maybe having all the answers is like wishing the end of all meaning. You know, not the kind of practical answers to questions like, what is the length of this bench, but whether the people sitting on it are living their lives towards some cosmic purpose or not. That's the kind of answers I'm talking about. 
answers to the most worthy questions, which ironically are not meant to be answered, regardless of our great efforts to do so. So much to learn. Definitive answers to such questions would rob us of our freedom. Freedom of choosing what's worthy and what's not, acting on faith, changing your mind and being responsible for all of these choices. It makes good sense, too. What's the main condition to sustain infinite potential such as ours, if not a big question mark always out of reach? The big carrot that always keeps us on the move, always becoming, never complete. Oh, boy, you sure like to talk. Tell me, is this fancy speech of yours just a time-consuming way of saying to my face that I am collecting garbage? Me? No, I mean, I don't know that. Do you? That's enough, young man. I've heard enough. I'm taking my answers and leaving. But... And since you like questions so much, here is one for you. If worthless answers are the only thing that leads to actions, the only thing that makes things actually happen... What's the real use of your precious questions and crazy theories to the world out there anyway? Good day. And the old fish walks off and the little eye guy says to himself and then to his questions. That's Keeper. Did you hear that? I just found a new friend for you to play with. And scene. <laughs> okay. I trust you'll edit all my craps out of there. I some of them. 